right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up Podcast. Solly here, back in the kill house. We're back, TC. Hello, TC. Oh, I'm excited. I'm we ready to roll, baby. So much to talk about. DJ Pie is calling in from Milwaukee. Hello, Pie Man. Hello, guys. Great to be with you. And then guest spotting tonight for the first time, I think, in four years, if I remember right. Uh, he is our friend Job Fickett. He has been a former contributor uh, to the blogosphere of No Laying Up, mostly on a Ryder Cup front, European Tour front. Many moons ago, life has gotten in the way, I believe, and from uh, you contributing over recent years. But uh, he's a lawyer in his own right, going to help us break down a lot of what is been going on in the world of golf. Hello, Job. Thank you for being here, gentlemen. I have to start by saying nothing I say today is legal oh, advice. Here we go. I am not your attorneys. Here we go. We do not have an attorney-client relationship. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's great. Thank you, guys. And, and can I say, once a contributor, always a contributor. That's true. You know, the, the, no, no former contributors uh, in in the uh, no leg up. Universe. You guys have never made me pay for a T-shirt, and for that, I will always be. <laughs> and once a once a member of Team Europe, always a member of Team Europe. Uh, no, I was always on Team USA. Uh, <laughs> maybe you're just the only one following. <laughs> I was writing about the European tour, but when it came to Ryder Cup loyalties, uh, USA, USA. Uh, I got to first tell you guys about the Callaway Rogue ST three wood. Uh, I've got the Rogue ST LS. I've been using it for only about a month and a half now, maybe two months. I, I was admittedly late getting to it. I loved my old one uh, that much, but I have absolutely loved it since I put it in the bag. I just got to say, I've never taken advantage of this because we're usually trying to get this uh, the clubs in our hands as fast as possible. How customizable these things are on the Callaway Golf website. You can go in and you can mess with all the colors, all the... Blah, blah, blah. TC, you could probably tell me a bit more than I could tell you about how to customize these things. Yeah. No, I, I think the customization on the colors and the way it looks, but also like the amount of shafts that are available to put in these things as far as, and then like that are basically treated as stock shafts that they don't upcharge you for. I love it. I don't think I've missed a fairway yet with my three wood. You guys can probably attest. Now my driver is another story, but the three wood is fantastic. I love, love, love this thing. Well, and speaking of ways to customize your three wood, you can uh, if you order it through the Callaway Golf website, you can get a custom no laying up branded Callaway Rogue ST three wood head cover. TC and Neil feeling nostalgic for the glory days of high school golf when the big birth of fuzzy head covers were all the rage. We recreated our own, so you can go to the Callaway Golf uh, website, order your Rogue ST three wood, and on the order summary page, if you enter code NLU, you can add the sweet head cover to your cart for free. Can I add something about the head cover? Sure. There is nothing more satisfying than pulling like the sock head cover off because for a while there, a lot of companies went with like the magnetic clasping things, which were terrible. The sock head cover, like when you pull it off, you get it out of the bag, you mean business. It's awesome. Yeah, exactly. CallawayGolf.com, use code NLU uh, at checkout and you get a free head cover with it. It's a, it's a great deal. So thank you to, uh, to Callaway for supporting that. Oh, weirdly fun weekend of golf. Uh, it was, I'm not going to lie, it was looking pretty bleak as of Saturday afternoon sitting down to watch really what was supposed to be the, the first full field uh, event since the PGA Tour and Live Tour fractured golf. And man, it was a JJ Spawn Fest as of Saturday afternoon. And I think the tour somehow managed to avoid all of the landmines that were on the top of that leaderboard and got the winner that they would want out of today. Will Zalator? I was thinking at one point, like, tr like Troy Merritt was up there. Yes. Harmon. I'm like, how much are they going to pay? Troy Molinax. How much are they going to pay these guys? To take a dive here. Trey Molinax. Troy Mullins and Trey Molinax. We're going to get... Uh, 
Yeah. We're gonna, we're gonna I said Trey Mornax, right? It, you, said you said Troy. You said Troy. Troy? We're going to yeah. get this messed up forever. Right. Cowboy Troy bullet ass. <laughs> I don't really know where to start other than uh, you, Will Zalatoris's iron play is, I mean, he found the slot. I don't know exactly when it was, and it was just absolutely relentless. He was never going to hit an iron offline. The only suspense really came from whether or not he was going to hit the fairway with whatever he was using off the tee. He did not do a lot of that on this Sunday. But gosh, the iron play is—it was a total. It was flashing everywhere. I mean, the wedges, the distance control, going after pins that he probably had no business going after. Uh, it, it all ended very, very weird. But the point to get it there was just some tremendous, tremendous golf from Friday on. He said, uh, I think in recent, like either this week or in previous weeks, that uh, Thursdays have been an issue for him. He shot seventy-one, one over on Thursday. It looked like that was going to be the case again this week. Shot sixty-three. On Friday, 65, 66 on the weekend. I thought he was going to get TIO on 18. Why, why were you saying it's a, it's a property boundary? He hits it. Hits. No, no, no I, I, because where he was going to hit it up by the green, I thought for sure that there was going to be hospitality encroaching gotcha. upon that line. Gotcha. Uh, but sure enough, he didn't. So to, no harm, no foul. I want nothing to do with 18 at Southwind. That that tee shot, the, the whole concept of that hole, you can't just – pound driver and, and eliminate the trouble you got to hit the driver the right distance i want absolutely nothing to do with that hole which 18th hole between southwind and tpc sawgrass would you think is more intimidating i would think it's southwind because the angle is sharper and you can't cut it off whereas at sawgrass you can pick a line and try to cut off more of it plus there's bunkers on the outside of the dog leg at southwind yes. yeah and it's it seems it's seemingly longer like i want nothing to do with southwind at all. Just in general. <laughs> like, I was talking to a couple guys. I'm like, that place looks so fucking hard, man. There's water everywhere. If you're not in the fairway, you're like, you're you're running the risk of going in the water on your on your approach shot. The greens are tiny. There's Bermuda grass that's tough to chip off of everywhere. Like, I, I have nightmares just watching that place. I was texting you guys. I, I think if you want to identify a true FedEx Cup champion, you, you move the tour championship, you whittle it down to the last eight guys and you make them play 18 at Southwind 72 times in a row and <laughs> cumulative score. You know, who, who is the, the biggest dick player left, left in the field? Who, who doesn't go insane? Who maintains their sanity? I think that's how you crown the champion going forward. I do have a question as it relates to Zalatoris. He drains a 10 foot putt in the center of the cup on the 72nd hole and screams, what are they going to say now? I just want to know who that was directed at, right? Yeah, Probably me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I've been the only one at this point who's still, I still get uncomfortable watching him putt, but he fucking pours shit in from outside of like eight to 10 feet. And he poured everything in from inside of eight feet this week too. So I'm assuming that's at me, but like, I don't, it's not like For I sure. doubt the guy. It's just a matter of like, he's, it just doesn't look good. The arm lock takes a lot of the nerves out of it. Well, it's also to say like, well, Hey man, like, First of all, a, a, there's been a groundswell of support for you in pursuit of your first win. I think for the majority, I feel like a lot of people are like, yeah, it's just a matter of time. He really is that good. I don't think there's really been much of a knock on him for not winning at all. And uh, I don't know. You got to use internal weird stuff to motivate you anyways. But I just found that funny that he was – somebody tweeted that he had that saved in his drafts, and I couldn't get that image out of, out of my mind. I, I think that's a good point. It's a big, big week for false flags. Uh, it reminded me of another guy that – you know, I've always supported, you know, just kind of said, just stay patient. The wins are going to come big. Toe. Oh, God, <laughs> I knew that was coming. You know, I, I think, uh, no, I'm, I'm very much with you. I don't really know who was I don't really know who was was knocking Zalatoris as some sort of choker or something like 
I, I don't know. I, there, there's almost like this weird counter narrative building now that like he's a good putter. Like they, they talk so much about the bad putting that no, 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 he's actually like good. He's not good. Yeah. He's not good. Like Sully, he, he's Sully's not, looking it up on data golf right it's now. It's not like catastrophic. But he's outside the top like hundred in almost everything. Like he, he's, he fucking stinks. He's better than than zero strokes gained for the season in putting for the year for overall twenty twenty for twenty twenty two. Yes, overall putting. Yes. yes. But like, and and I think his speed control is great. His lag putting is awesome. We saw a lot of that like on display. But dude, the, it's not like some made up fake narrative. Like the the mid range stuff is is mucho not good. And it was great today. So it was awesome to see him flip that today. It was it was fun to watch. Is it the mid range stuff that's the issue, or the short stuff that's the issue? Well, it's like it's the mid range shorties, right? Four They're to eight like feet. Four to okay. eight feet. Yeah, it's the number. But like, I think a, a lot of that was really bad. And I I I keep making this point. I swear to God, he's freed up with the Zorro stroke. Whatever he found a stroke that worked for him, and those putts go in. Do they look pretty? No. It is the it is a fascinating band-aid of a chuck knoblock situation that he has going on but those balls are going in the hole now i mean there's there's the videos out there of the really really short ones that either missed or barely went in and those are the ones that are kind of trapped at the front of mind but did he ever miss any one of those that was really really important it seems like anytime he has a significant putt late in the tournament no matter the length it's either going in or scaring the hole i mean the one that he missed on 18 at brookline looked like it could have gone in for the same price and I know that was a little bit longer putt, but the short I thought he ones, hit a good putt there, too. Right. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I mean, it, it seems like whenever it's late in the tournament on Sunday, if it's not the putting necessarily that's a liability. Although, I mean, obviously every shot counts earlier in the week, and that could be what comes back to ultimately make the difference. But uh, the shorties don't seem to be as much of a problem anymore. And it could be a Morikawa situation. I mean, if you look at the his putting stats from the majors, like he was pl- almost two strokes gained in the U.S. Open this year, which he almost won. Almost uh, a shot and a half stroke gain putting at the Masters this year. Like it might just be like a little bit of a PGA Tour fast greens kind of thing that just doesn't really you know suit his eye, and it's not going to be a consistent thing week to week. But if you do go week to week, it's it's a bunch of negative weeks in there. Only one really bad one, the Byron Nelson, where he missed the cut, um, and then the Scottish Open was pretty bad too. But the rest are just hovering around neutral. And dude, with that ball striking man, there's just no you can't hide a pin from him. You really can't. It's a dream golf course form it's a very much a kneel it all becomes clear to me after the fact that he would win on this golf course because uh yeah it, it is a precision iron play test and uh I'm, I'm i'm really pumped for him man that was you could tell how much it was kind of weighing on him at the end his reaction at the end was just kind of like a oh thank god finally which and he's like really hasn't played all that well since the u.s open he right. missed the cut in scotland uh t28 at the open uh, T20 at, at, at Detroit and then T21 at Wyndham. So it's not like he's like the floodgates have been open since he, like, he's kind of been scuffling a little bit. He also uh, fired his caddy and then immediately won on the first start. So what is, well, I thought that was fascinating, especially on that, on the drop, just like listening to the two of them go back and forth and talk about yardages and all that when there's really no prior experience for either of them together to draw upon. And so everything's new. You're feeling each other out and you're in this spot that, you know, ostensibly tens of millions of dollars are on the line. Like that's a massive, massive, massive spot. Big J Monahan has to be happy. For sure. I wonder on the caddy front, first of all, do we have anybody have any insight on what happened with the mid round? That that's a what a weird thing. Like this is one of those golf things where if it was any other sport, 
like different things would be the biggest story in the world. And with, when it's golf, it's just kind of like, oh, huh, that's interesting. All right, well, let's move on. And it's like the guy who won this week fired his caddy mid-tournament, and everyone's just like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. Uh, and I, I don't know why. I don't know what happened. It was I, mutual. I, it was mutual. Yeah, sure. totally mutual. Uh, <laughs> that's, that was a good one. That kind of got me. But I, I wonder... To your point, Tron, like I wonder if a situation like that almost becomes uh I don't know, this is unnecessary psychoanalysis, but if it almost becomes easier because there's no like there's no built-in, you know, not scar tissue, but there's just no context, right? Like you're it seems like you're out there almost like truly working together rather than in the back of your head, like, man, this is just like fucking Detroit when you you said this and I wanted to do this and blah blah. Like there's no almost like uh build up or residue kind of that's uh, what he said he, he was talking about just just reading this this golf.com article nick nick piastowski basically saying yeah it was the toughest decision i've ever had to make in my golf career ryan's brother for life we've kind of had a rough month together it was starting to affect our relationship i know guys say that when they split but it really was we were guys that we would love to have dinner together and hang out and it just started what was going on on the course was starting to bleed off the course and that's not what you want i don't know just kind of a weird like I, I would, I would be very curious to know what, like, where specifically it came to a head. Was it a, a number? Was it a club selection? Was it a? And it could be as simple as like a uh, chemistry thing. It could be as much on will as it is the caddy, right? It's just like, it's just not quite working for me right now. And it might not be your fault, like, but the way I am, am executing things, you know, with you out there for four and a half hours, five hours at a time, is just not a great match for me right now, and a, a change of pace. Uh, can can be a great thing. I think it's a really tough and mature thing to have to do at age 26 to like, and also just pointing out like it seems like almost every player, really good young player around this age makes a big caddy change at some point. I mean, Tiger made it, it was much younger when he made a caddy change, but you look at Scotty Scheffler, made an enormous caddy change. Um, I mean, just uh, I'm drawing blanks on a lot of other guys that have. JT is a little older, yeah. but you know, he had that one. Yeah. And doing it at such a, you know, late point in the season to where normally it's a, you know, I guess it makes sense because it's that stuff builds up during the season, but yeah, it's just a very, I don't know, I'm I'm very, I'm very keen on Zalatoris because I think he's he's obviously got the ball stri striking chops to be a top one, top two player in the world, and it's just a matter of figuring out these little variables along the way, um, and and yeah, I think like the PGA Tour has got to be just overjoyed with you know him of all people winning this week where he's been one of the vocal ones yeah. out front talking about this and, and getting up in front of pressers and in front of reporters and going to ride for the tour which also maybe point out of all the close calls he's had maybe this was the tournament he deserved to win the least <laughs> it was a, a this ball should have gone ob in the on the uh second playoff hole was it where it hits the cart path and it got caught up in a tree the only thing to prevent it from going ob he made a great par save as uh, to do that, uh, to take care of that, and then steps up on 11 and just block Queef's one right at the hole, which is not the right play on 11, and the ball holds up on the bank or on the rock, which really didn't do much for him because he has to go back to the drop area anyways. But Sepp Straka, all he's got to do, all he's got to do is Zalatoris in the water, basically. All you got to do is hit the middle of 11 green, and he just goes at the flag. After the doing? two drives on 18. Yeah, that... he tried to go in the water twice. What is he doing? He also plays He plays so fast it's possible he he hit that before Zal Torres' ball even like came to rest. <laughs> Maybe he didn't even know where it was. 
I was so shook by how fast he was playing. It was crazy. It was just reckless. I said he, he's like a. It's like he plays blackjack and he hits on nineteen. I mean, he just some of the. Was, you, said, you said he's got some Leroy Jenkins in him. Yeah, he just really stops. All right, well, Zalatoris, it doesn't matter. I'm doing this, and here's how we're gonna do it. All right, you got to play close to the water to win one of these things. You got to play close to hazards. I got a confession. I think I might be a huge Sepp Straka guy after today. I think all the the zebra putter, the square shoes, the Austria to Valdosta, the fired at every single flag. I think there's so much bad, it's good that I was like, man, give me this guy every week. This is this is kind of great. His family's still living in Valdosta. <laughs> yeah, I'm just I'm shook by that. And all, like it, it, it would have been really, really, really poignant and and tough for Faldo to stomach the guy wearing squares <laughs> won the week after he retired. <laughs> I will say, uh, Straka reminds me a little bit of of Sungjae in the way that like he how aggressive he plays when in contention. In terms of, I mean, he went after what's the par three on the back that nobody should be going after that pin. He just like stared that pin down, went directly after all the putts on the back nine. He's running six, seven, eight feet by because he's trying to make everything he looks at. I just have respect for somebody that when he gets in contention. I think we said the same thing at PGA National this year. Uh, he just steps up, plays fast, and goes for the jugular. And maybe you don't need to do that in certain uh, situations like I, this playoff. I think but both the par threes on the back you don't really go for. <laughs> like it's fourteen, the eleven's the, yeah. the the island one, and then fourteen's like fucking nasty. Yeah, two two hundred and twenty yards, and you know water cutting in all down the right. Zalatoris is, is a quick player too. I just want to say that so that it makes it so that watching the playoff was actually like it had it was exciting. Yeah, it had pace. It had you know. Exactly. You weren't waiting like a you know a minute between every shot because both of those guys just step up and hit it. And I think what's what's hard too is I don't know. I, this is kind of speaking out of both sides of our mouth because all we do is kind of talk about the game theory and what does it all mean and all that stuff. But most of ev- most of most golf tournaments are so boring, right? That it, it really takes until those last like four or five holes when the picture kind of starts to crystallize and you can kind of see like. Okay, this guy's actually in it. This guy's not in it. This guy needs to do this on this hole. But once you kind of remove yourself from like, well, you know, what does it really mean for the PJ Tour if Sepp Straka wins a playoff event? It's like, who fucking cares, man? Like, what? Well, once you can finally kind of free yourself of that stuff, is like, wow, this is a delight to watch. And it's just, uh, it, it, it's a little harder to do that these days. I think when everything is, you know, what does it all mean? But it, it was, it was nice to finally. Uh, I think everybody kind of collectively felt that click in right around that that first time they got to like 17, 18, and and Straka started uh, continually. God, that shot he hit into eighteen in regulation was oh the rough. I mean, it just like stopped me in my tracks. Oh, it was unbelievable. That was, that Sitting was down in the rough, one ninety four, two hundred yards. Yeah, that was one of the best oh, shots unreal. I've seen all year. It, to yeah. hold that green out of unpredictable Bermuda over water into the 18th and I think it lands into the grain which m- makes a huge difference when you know the middle of summer on on grainy Bermuda but still that was that's what I'm saying like every single shot was just like well I'm gonna take the maximum amount of risk on that but I possibly then, can how about him like taking the drop in the playoff yeah. and I'm like he must just really like this fucking number because you <laughs> know and, and evidently he did because yeah. he hit it to what five feet uh after taking yeah. the draw so he basically he's in the rough there again, he was, which that he ball was had no business his, staying up either. Like no, it landed yeah. left of the fairway and stayed and up. And he's ta- he, like he's already taken his shoe off. He's <laughs> already rolled his pants up or whatnot. And he he says, you know what? Like very adult. Like maybe the most adult decision ever. Somebody tweeted that earlier, and I'm like, dude, like what's he like? At least advance it up there fifty yards and be fifty yards closer. And he yeah. must have just really liked that number. 
Yeah, I guess it's, you know, why take the risk on a, a next shot if it's just going to be a layup, right? It's like the yeah. caddies will tell you if you, can, if you can get the ball on the green, this might be worth the risk of doing it. But if the best option is to is to get into the fairway, with like let's just take the drop and, and try to stuff one in there. Also, probably feeling pretty good about four might win it, five is definitely going to be good enough for a playoff. The same thing applies to Zalatoris on the last playoff hole where you, know, you hope the caddy looks at them and says, do you feel better about this shot than you do from 93 yards in Zalatoris's position or whatever it was, 165 or whatever for Straka. It's like, which, which one is going to have the, the greater outcome most of the time? Like, and there's less variables. Yeah. Correct. Zalatoris wanted to hit that ball off the rocks so badly. I'm I, so I convinced like we it was a, it was a foot joy FedEx St. Jude activation, activation <laughs> to show the shoes, which the shoes are fire. Admittedly. I felt like after, after he said like, okay, you've already committed to go to the drop zone. This is purely for practice. Does everybody want to see him hit it just to see what would happen? I feel like they should have let him do that. It's, it's not going to count, but please hit it because we want to see if you could have pulled it off. It was crazy that then then Straka was still away yeah. as yeah. well. So I feel like that that kind of made him even revisit a little bit more. The only other shot I thought Zalatoris may have wanted to give some uh, thought to was flipping the toe of the putter over and hitting it with the toe, but he doesn't have Popping a blade. Yeah, but he doesn't have a blade putter, so it's not flush. It's not straight. Uh, on the end of the putter so um, you know but you know had he had a normal blade putter you could flip it over on its toe and just kind of pop it down into and it would get up over it's like the old vj exactly but it felt like honestly it could have jammed underneath the the grass oh yes like that's where it was i i i could see exactly what he was thinking of if i literally just get this ball move forward a foot like i'm gonna win the golf tournament it's like something neil would yeah (laughs) or 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 you belly it with a wedge and it goes in the back bunker and then it's like well anything yeah it's just truly anything could happen or it's like hey dude 90 yards wedge shot you're one of the best wedge players on earth like let's just go do that we're not going to lose the tournament right here if we do that and uh gosh that was just chaotic finish to that golf tournament i I can't tell you guys how hard cam smith would have hit that shot (laughs) yes (laughs) did you see his flop on uh three today the 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 par five just a complete lunatic he missed out of a bad lie he missed it 60 yards left in the kit like he's like looking up over a tree just to fly everyone's like i don't even know what he's really looking at here and of course he he actually pulled that one off but uh yeah that was that was very penalize penalize me two strokes better get them all back right now Better make this one. Can I go back to what DJ was talking about a little earlier about what does it all mean and just kind of interject with a question I had about would we care more about the FedEx Cup generally? Would it have more juice if it was not purely a brand exercise for FedEx, which obviously like we know that they have to get something out of the you know hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that they're putting up year over year. But if it was just a non-branded event now that's got a little bit of history, would we care about it more or would it still just kind of lack the juice feel like every other PGA Tour event? It's a great question. Um, I, I think when I hear FedEx Cup, I don't hear the sponsor part of it anymore. It's kind of the same way like with the Genesis or whatever. I just hear, you know, I I, I don't think that much about it in, uh, in, in that term. And I still don't know if I how much I really care just because – just pretty easy to gain a sense of how people feel about it, right? Like, I, if I asked you right now who won the 2019 FedEx Cup, like, could you name it off the top of your head? Absolutely. I think it was Rory, wasn't that? 19? 18 was Rose. Because that was uh, the yeah, Tiger. See, exactly. Uh, JT, maybe? Could have been. See, that's what I'm saying. It's like, you, you, we, you, could, you could tell me who won the 2019 Open Championship, right? Off the top of your head, pretty easily. 
that Molinari? Molinari. Okay, maybe not. That was Shane Lowry. But the point being, like, oh, the point stands. It's not like a cha- it's not a Super Bowl. It's not a championship. Molinari won eighteen. It's not the uh, like the one winner of the year is the FedEx Cup, but it was uh, Rory in nineteen. Okay. The it, fact that FedEx is spawned. This is the sixteenth year of it. The fact that the tour has kept FedEx not only sponsoring this for sixteen years. But doubling down and quadrupling down. And Phil has the balls to say that the tour's not doing a good job bringing money in. I mean, like, crazy. like that's insane. And, and, cool. and just and like almost to the point where everybody, golf fans almost despise FedEx instead of feeling gracious of, hey, you know what? Like, props to FedEx for supporting our game. It's like, no, fuck FedEx. <laughs> I, I think, Solly, going to your point about, you know, you don't really hear it anymore. I, I think that's because you made up your mind like 15 years ago how you feel about it. Right. And and part of that is like, I'm with you, Job, that I, I think if it was not a like you can't name the trophy after a shipping company. <laughs> like you just you, you can't do that, man. They and should that, name that it the is, Fred Smith Memorial Trophy or something. Like I just that. I I am just uh, i don't know maybe maybe this is totally totally wrong marketing people can absolutely shoot me in the face regarding this idea but just how much of a difference would it really make for fedex if you had called it the pj tour playoffs presented by fedex like would be so much different i feel like people would take it so much more seriously i feel like fedex is mostly there for a hospitality play anyways and like hosting people and doing b2b stuff on site at events and i mean i i always i bring this story up all the time but i remember when spieth won in 15 i was following him doing like the uh you know just doing like social media stuff and taking photos as he was doing his trophy like all the different things that you do before you go to the media tent or before you you know after from like the point you sign your scorecard until you know the point you leave the property basically i was just like following him on all that stuff and watching him come into the fedex party and like the champagne toast and seeing all the executives up on the dais like oh god i'm about to fucking hang out with jordan speed <laughs> was like oh that's why they do it like it has nothing to do with impressions it has nothing to do with any of that it's just like because these guys are dorks and they want to like hang out with you know golfers and that's where i i come back to like man it would be such a different thing if it was just the pj tour playoffs presented by a brand and then also to your point john like if the gravy train ever stops, like, what do you just rename the trophy? Like, how fucking stupid is that? They do that right? in a lot of other events. Yeah. Which, but I'll push back though, because I think if FedEx just wanted, like, if you know Fred Smith or whomever wants to just hang out with, with, you know, pro golfers, a like his son is the Atlanta Falcons head coach, and b like they could just sponsor an event. They don't have to spend, you know, ten x or twenty x or whatever they're spending. I think what they're what they're buying as well is. If you just call it the PGA Tour playoffs, it's like what what FedEx is buying is all of those FedEx Cup. Like they're getting promo every single day of every single tournament. And it's access to the entire network of other sponsors on the PGA Tour and their businesses and yeah. using getting FedEx involved with their businesses if they are other, you know, Be- have shipping needs. Because part of it is like if you're going to, like if you're taking it back to, all right, like the PGA Tour playoffs, the PGA Tour wouldn't have playoffs because it wouldn't. It's also not playoffs. It's just ex- a, exactly. It's just a, like the, it's like a they've like gerrymandered this entire thing to to make it work for a title sponsor here. When really, like this this whole fucking thing is stupid and shouldn't exist. If the gravy train ever did dry up, there can't be that many other companies 
that are totally liquid yeah. enough to sponsor something like. I mean, we're and talking they're bidding against <laughs> themselves, and, right? And, and and honestly, FedEx's stock was like in the tank the last few years to the point where people were wondering if Walmart or Shopify was going to buy them. The other thing is like at some point, like all right, Sepp Straka was what like hadn't made a cut in a couple months, and he's all of a sudden going to be. He's in the top ten now. I mean, he's yeah, he's like top top seven or top eight now. It's like, but but you know, those those guys that were on the leaderboard on Saturday, like if one of them wins, like what a farce. So, is there anything anyone could do to give this juice, or no? Is it just it's just doomed to be what it is? For- well, I think it's going to change for the better. I mean, having 125 guys get in the playoffs is just like having all 30 NFL teams or 30 however many yeah. it's 32 NFL teams all make the playoffs and like couple of them get to start with a little bit of a head start in one of the games. When in reality, like seven, even 70, which it starts with next year, is not enough of it whittled down to like, here's the guys that made the playoffs. If you want to make some actual... That's ju- actually, I mean, probably there's, there's how many guys with like legit cards? Probably 160 that like between all the different exemptions and get out of jail free cards and everything that they have. So I would say 170 out of 160 feels like a similar proportion yeah. to... You know NBA or NFL or something like that, but yeah, it's crazy to see you know like a Tyler Duncan up there and be like, oh, dude, like he finished like well outside the top 100 this year. Like, get the fuck out of here! Like, you shouldn't be in the postseason. Yeah, I I definitely definitely agree with that. I I also think I, I know we talk about it every year at match play. I know all the inherent risks, but this thing got exciting today when it was mono and mono also a true match right? play like, situation yeah like a match play a match play final would be so much more interesting and you might have to do something like weird for that to to happen right it might need to be like a start the tour championship final round with a certain number of guys and slowly whittle it down or something like that it would be phenomenal but then there's all the like people coming to you know coming from the other side of like you're giving away so much money that you can't it's the same thing with the olympics like you're trying to crown a true champion like you can't do some fucked up format uh, <laughs> i still love the fact which, that i think they're still scarred from the whole like kevin sutherland uh, <laughs> for sure <laughs> he ruined the match they ruined yeah. the match play um, and our guy pierre folky who we talked to in sweden i will say yeah it just you know some of the sponsor stuff can be, you know, a little uh, in your face. But on a totally different note, college football is back, and it's time to enjoy the tradition, the fun, and the great offers from DraftKings Sportsbook. And to celebrate the best time of year right now, new customers can bet just $5 on any team and get $200 in free bets instantly, win or lose. And if that's not enough action, you can place a same-game parlay for a shot at an even bigger payout. Just combine multiple bets into one, uh, which team will get the win, who will, uh, which team will score for score first, and more. Uh, DraftKings is, of course, safe, secure, and reliable. Best of all, you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code NLU. Bet just $5 on college football and get $200 in free bets instantly. That's code NLU. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook 21 and older in most eligible states, but age varies by jurisdiction. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash Sportsbook for terms and resources. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In Tennessee, call or text the Tennessee red line at 1-800-889-9789. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY at 467-369. One per new customer. Minimum $5 deposit and wager. $200 issued as eight. $25 free bets. The red line. They are throwing just moguls, obstacles, anything they can at me in the legalese there, but we rocked them, baby. We rocked them. I was uh, I was in New York this week, had a, uh, put a little coin. I had a feeling on uh, Colin Morikawa, got a plus 5,000, so appreciated the, the finish there uh, from him, the, the missed shorties and the uh, 
the bogey to finish that that was it was getting a little tiny bit exciting there for a minute can i just give the tour some props it's uh it's eight it's eight eleven p.m here on sunday night maybe an hour hour and 15 minutes after the conclusion of play uh i click on the fedex cup standings which are the headline on the website they're not updated they're updated pr- these are the ones prior to the tournament even starting through August seventh. Where's the tour props that you're giving here? No, oh, that was I was being facetious. Okay, gotcha. I'm just yeah. <laughs> waiting for the catch here. It's like you guys want this to mean something. Like you know, you, you have projected standings, official standings. Like, can you make these the official standings? All right, I just oh, it bugs me. Any other any other housekeeping from the Saint like from this week? Probably Cam Smith ruling. Um, so for those that were not familiar, this came out uh, this morning that Cam Smith, uh, upon an official's viewing of the replay in the hotel the night before, uh, saw Cam Smith drop on the fourth hole on the par three. He took a drop after hitting it in the water, and the ball dropped and rolled down and was touching the red line uh, next to the fourth, the water hazard uh, or the penalty area uh, next to the fourth green. He played from there. Nobody thought anything of it until this official saw it on the replay. And as of this morning, after the fourth round had already begun, had a conversation uh, with Cam about it and then decided to penalize him uh, two shots. So he saw it last night. Yes, on Saturday night. And then waits. So everybody locks their lineups, gets their bets in, all that stuff. So we're going to we're gonna treat this like a – we're going to try to treat it like a real sport most of the time. We're going to wait almost 22 hours to penalize Cam, which Cam, Cam and Sam need to be better. This is like the – most basic, simple rule it's, in the book. It's three. It's very easy. Three steps in my mind. Cam broke the rule. Should have been penalized. Yeah, that's totally. One. I have no issue. With should that. have known the. You know, should have known the rule. One. Uh, that's another one. And the third is like you. It, at what point are rounds over, man? If you want to, I hate to tie everything back to gambling and 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 betting and everything, but there is a whole slew of people that are interested in this sport based on the fact that they can game on it and have fun. And the and tour is pushing that angle really hard. Really hard and. How is he not disqualified for signing an incorrect scorecard? That's, so that's, they yeah. changed that rule to the point where if you got something after you sign your card and video review changes a ruling, you did not sign an incorrect scorecard. After you sign your scorecard, your round's over. <laughs> like yeah, you would think. That's where I would agree that it's like, hey, all right, first of all, like the, all like of the, these results are official. Everything is moot at this point. I, that's how it should be. The I play mean, is not governed on the PGA Tour, and that's my issue. But like... How I don't expect a rules official with every group. I don't expect every shot to be, you know, like tracked by a rules official. But I do expect a rules official to be watching the telecast, and that should. I didn't know this rule. I really, honestly, didn't know this was a rule. But that should have jumped off the like jumped off the screen at a rules official that was watching it to say like, hey, wait a second. I'm going to ask top five. I'm going to ask Cam about this after the round because that drop on four did not look like it was right. And the fact that it took until that night for somebody to see it is that's a, that's. But a problem. then he watches it that night and then waits another eight hours to to even surface it, and then another like it was what one o'clock by the time it was like one or two Eastern by the time all this was yeah like that's like what the fuck happened in the in the in the sixteen hours like or really or the the twelve hours from the time that this guy ostensibly watched it at ten p.m. that night to even 10, 10 a.m. that next day. It just doesn't make sense to me. And it's also like, if that happens in round four, it, it it's not a thing. Like, it's not going to come out tomorrow. They're not going to go back and change exactly. the results of the tournament. So. It just makes it all feel so, like, just... Arbitrary. Yeah. It's just, ah, oh, it's, it's like, like, when has the tour ever been 
adamant about like the rules, right? Like, I mean, they've given Patrick Reed the benefit of the doubt on every possible occasion in lieu of this. And like the timing of this, after all the Cam Live stuff this week, it just like I'm, you know, it like it seems like everything was above board as far as like this is the right ruling, but the whole timing of it and everything just sucks even more. It, it's a very convenient connecting of the dots of like this seems pretty vindictive, and I don't I don't necessarily disagree with that. It it certainly looks worse. I mean, if it had been any other player, it's a story, but it's not a big story. But because it's Cam Smith. Yeah, and, and I mean, look, the, some of this stuff has happened. I don't remember what the timing was of um, Dylan Fratelli's penalty from that he got, I think, in Hilton Head when he hit the ball out of the tree, but he was straddling his line. But like, that was a video review of some kind. So it's not like, you know, only Cam's getting singled out here. I just, yeah, I, I don't know what the actual protocol is for like, yeah, the cards are signed and I'm a rules official, but I saw this on TV later. Um, but I didn't say something immediately. Like that, like to me, like that rules official, cool, like you're suspended. Like straight up, like twelve hours went by and you didn't say anything, and then finally, and maybe they did, and that was like a we can't do anything until we're back on site. Then maybe they tried to get a hold of Cam. I don't know that, but it's it just not. It's not great. It's 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 really not. Um, Can we talk about Brian Harmon's outfit? Sure, the black shoes with like the rumpled up khakis. It's just like it's really bad. That was a 180 <laughs> degree turn. No, I'm just, Not I'm getting, I'm looking, I'm trying to get all the, because I know we got so much other stuff to talk about here. So I'm much. trying to get some of my housekeeping <laughs> I, I notes. I appreciate you getting that in. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like Harmon used to care so deeply about what he was wearing and how he dressed. To where now it's like, the, like the guy looks like he's, he's going hunting right after the round. I know we got to get to a lot of stuff, but this has got to get priority <laughs> in the top half of the show. How about the group at T5, by the way? Adam Scott, John Rahm, Colin Morikawa, Tony Finau, Matt Fitzpatrick, uh, Andrew Putnam, and Trey Mullinax as well. But uh, how about Big Which, Tone gave you another scare, Deej? No, I know. It was thrilling to watch, man. Um, just really, really fun stuff. Uh no, I don't know. You know, I, I will take this offline. I got to figure out which way we're going to take the big tone bit. I haven't really decided yet. So just give, give me some more time. Happy one year anniversary, though, by the way, of, uh, of you not paying off your debt from uh, from last year's first playoff event. Oh, mahalo. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, listen, man, we're we're penciled in for the NIT. I'm already I'm growing it out. You can that's see. the second bet. The first bet is uh, that's the one we're talking about with the mutton chops. So, oh, well, I'm going to try to pay them both off. at the okay. same time. If we're talking about guys. T three Lucas Glover went from 121st in the in the vaunted Should, FedEx Cup to shouldn't have 34th. even been in there. Exactly, was only there because guys dropped out. Exactly. Now he's basically, Unreal. you know, he's he's probably a shit. He has a good week at BMW next week. He's a shoe in. Yeah. Uh, Adam Scott went from you know outside the cut, potentially going into Wyndham to 77th to 45th now. Shot 66 today. T31, who and or what is a Taylor Moore? <laughs> I've never heard of Taylor Moore, but apparently he is not only uh, a professional golfer, but playing next playoffs. week. <laughs> Honestly, Joe Petlin's news to me as well. Uh, <laughs> it's a very serious golf event. I, feel like I, I think I played ping pong with him a few years ago at the the Corn Ferry. Hmm championship it, uh, it seems like did they just slot him into taylor gooch's spot in the uh give him a why <laughs> <laughs> can you I, I know we don't need to get hung up on this but purely because it's fun just just imagine another sport like looking at the at the scoreboard at the end of the day just be like huh never heard of that team <laughs> who who's that team 
They're in the playoffs? Huh. The cliques. In, in fairness, I do have for this. The Wildcats. Well. I mean, who the fuck are the Wildcats? I've never heads? heard of them. <laughs> the cliques. I, w- I will say, though, uh, look, we had an exciting finish today, but also, if I haven't made this point enough in recent weeks and months, like I, I don't I don't want to give off the impression that we're pretending like the dudes that have left for live uh don't matter because like this tournament missed like Bryson would have done some dumb shit this week. He'd have done something weird. Brooks is like at least worth like checking in on to see how he's doing. DJ is another name that like it just kind of feels like I had this 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 thought today it was when you think back to like 2014, 2015 when we started this show, how rough of shape the PGA tour was in. I mean it was uh it was a lot of white not only was it a lot of white belts at this time, but it was just like a lot of like Sung Yil No and Camilo Vajegas and like Matt Kuchar stuff going on that was not that exciting. And it seemed like there was, but the farm system was really good, right? And we got a lot, a lot of prospects graduated up and we've had a, a pretty good run of, of solid tour golf. And then like salary caps hit and we had to offload a lot of the players. And now it's like time to like, yeah, now we're kind of stuck in between like, yeah, four, we four aces are the only team spending money. Right exactly. Now. <laughs> and we're kind of stuck between like, are we rebuilding? Are we mining for prospects? Or are we kind of embracing this window to compete and player to be named later? Yeah, it was, it, that's that's the feeling I had watching this week. It was like, man, we lost some talent. Like it, it, it's it's going to affect the viewing. And it, it's not even necessarily the talent as it is the entertainment value that some of those guys brought. I have a lot of guys left. I don't really care to ever watch play golf again. Yes. But there are some that I will miss watching them compete in this realm, like Bryson especially. I'm curious too to know like like how they go about it with the 125 versus I know you know with Bubba resigning and all that stuff. Like how much deeper they're going to need to go if they need to make any changes to the priority list as they move forward. Whether it be you know letting more Corn Ferry guys in or more guys down the list beyond the top 125 in the FedEx Cup. As far as cards go, because I think that's going to be a very real consideration as we move forward here. I think on on that front too, Sol. I think just you know, I don't know what they'll. I'm sure more structural changes will be coming, and the playoffs is is a good start. But just continuing to make sure that you know the the studs are put to the front of the line as much as possible, yep. right? I, I think is just becoming more and more ever important because the the farm system is good, right? I mean, it, I think probably highlighted by no one better than Zal Torres, if you want to even call him that. I mean, I know he's kind of been in every big event over the last couple of years, but it's not just him. Cam Young, Tagala. I think there's a bunch of a bunch of dudes that are like, how do we how do we not rig the system? But let's make sure these guys are are not uh, having too much food taken out of the mouths by Tyler Duncan's and things of that nature. But Zalatoris wasn't even in the fucking playoffs last year. <laughs> right, that's what I'm saying. We need to, we need to, we need to figure this out. And then, keep, and then, like moving. you know, I, he, I, he wasn't on the 60 man by September 1st. And you know, you can't. I see. You can't put him. I see something roster. about like about the just throwing 102 <laughs> in the bullpen, but he just didn't hit the deadline. They didn't use an option year on him. They, they, they didn't want to uh, start his service, start clock. his clock on the arbitration and all that. <laughs> Uh, but no, it's like, like I was kind of reminded of it this year with like Rory Sabatini. They're like, Oh, he finally lost his card or whatever, but check it out. He didn't cause he cashed <laughs> in his, you know, tw- top 25 or top 30 career money. How's he not on live by the way? That seems for sure. Cool. That's like, the upset of the century. Yeah. Live might be like, yeah, we're good, man. TC, I think Jimmy Walker might've lost his card. He did. He did. I appreciate it. Uh, I wanted your, to your, congratulate yeah. you on that. I know that's, that's exciting for <laughs> you. you. Andy Johnson harps on it a lot though, about how, 
a promotion or relegation system would be very, very exciting and give more meaning on a week-to-week basis for the guys that are closer to the cutoffs. And that's one thing that the PGA Tour could realistically do to beat Liv to the punch because Liv is talking about, well, we've only got 48 spots, and so that we, you know, who knows exactly how those last, you know, bottom 12 guys are going to shake in and out. And there's obviously a need to bring the Corn Ferry guys up sooner and give them more opportunities where you have all these fields where, not to beat a dead horse, but like John Houston's getting in like regular PGA Tour events. And that's something that the tour doesn't have to go way out of its way to do. Like the infrastructure is already in place. Why don't they do that? It seems like a merged point system would make so much more sense. Exactly. Like it, 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 there are times when it would make a ton of sense to call up Corn Ferry guys to play in PGA Tour events, but they don't want to do that unless they have status retained. Even if it's only like quarterly or, yeah. you, you know, like it doesn't have to be every single week, but the guys that have been playing the best for the last three months should be playing on the PGA Tour. And then, and then figure out how to give them you know, equivalent points for the corn fairy. That's what I'm saying. Event that yeah. Week. yeah. You got to give them some kind of, some sort of special temporary membership where like, once you get called up to the tour, it works like a major medical and you need to get this number of points to stay there. Okay. Well, if they're already playing better than most of the guys on the bottom 70, you know, in the points anyways, then they'll figure it out or they'll go back to the corn fairy tour. And it doesn't matter. Guys, I feel like we got to give JJ spawn a shout out. 78 Tom, today. He respawned a lot, but he eventually <laughs> ran out of lives. I still it, it was like one of those glitches where he kept respawning right in front of the uh, you know, the thing that kills you. <laughs> Which, by the way, like a, if you're playing yeah. a video game where Zalatoris was, I was like, is he actually in the hazard? Because I could see that being one of those glitches True. to where like oh, yeah. you can't like you, you can't even take a unplayable from there because there's nowhere to drop. Mm. Speaking of video games, I, w- I did have that on my list to bring up. Trey Mullinax might be the most EA Sports uh, creative player golfer on the PGA Tour. That's, that's kind of what it was feeling like for a while there. Of just like, oh, my like create a player avatars in the final group with with uh, Will Zalatoris. Like, this is pretty cool. <laughs> Spr- Springer Mountain Farms chicken yeah. on his shirt. <laughs> Alabama grad, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm good on I'm good on that. I'll say I, I'm back and forth on does the playoff point system make sense? Like, does it make sense for for guys to make be able to make as big a leaps as they are in in the playoff events? I I think they probably have to do a system that where it is possible to do that, or else it's really not a playoff. It's just kind of. I think it's gotten better. Yeah, I think it it seems about right. I think you could always tinker it, but like, does it a little weird that Sepp Straka is now in the top ten? Yeah, but like he won a tournament this year and got second in a playoff event, like. That kind of adds up to me. Like, has he had the best season? No, but if you want any kind of level of suspense in these playoffs, you need to have the opportunity that that can happen. Otherwise, it's just it becomes like the just a you know ATM line or a, a, you know lining up the bank teller to collect your money. So, um, the ball goes farther with more humidity. They could not understand this concept on Thursday. It Which, was have you and JT insane. squared that away? I think yet? I finally shushed him on that one. I think he kind of realized like, hey, I might. I'm not really arguing with Solly here. I'm arguing with science, and I don't want to. I don't want to, you know, lose that battle. And I the the FedEx uh, plane flyover on Saturday that got my juices flowing. I mean, I just was feeling just an outpouring of passion for for this country and uh, and the, the the FedEx servicemen. That was uh, that was that was a bizarre bizarre. Uh, I don't rem- they act like that was tradition. I do not remember that being a tradition at they, this event. They needed orange and purple chemtrails. It would have been way cooler. <laughs> Flyovers are sick. Like they've had a few at the Heritage over the years or they're you know boeing they will have do one monster of those. planes yeah, yeah. giant planes come over but yeah it's i don't know it was just kind of a, a weird a weird wrinkle something else i had was just uh did you guys see big dick rick his nine yeah that was tough he was he was in the hunt before that too not really i mean he was 
He was top like he was Thursday. Top, top he was, fifteen. When he made a nine, I don't I think he was already He was in pretty good shape. He was in the top twenty for sure. And Randy had that top ten bet. Not to not to just take us completely off track of this very important conversation, but Saki Baba is nine up through twenty five. Oh, she's nine up now. All right, she was eating right now. All right, so when we started, she was back to five up. I was like, oh man, we you know, I I thought we thought the hay was in the barn here. She has not missed Uh, a putt. She doesn't blow like this massive, massive lead. She was seven up after not be doing that after the initial eighteen. She made uh, seven birdies on her first first eighteen today. What a name. Saki Baba. Can we just can Great we just name. get the Great U.S. Name. Women's Am? Yes. That was the best golf I watched all, all week. Like I I had first of all shout out to NBC uh, or you know Golf Channel NBC whatever the hell we're calling it. Um, those just guys, golf. yeah, golf. Sorry, <laughs> Rich Lerner was on the call. Steve Burkowski, Morgan Pressel, uh, Kay Cockerell. I really like Morgan Pressel as an analyst. Jim Gallagher. Way. Jim Gallagher was out there. Julia Johnson did a great job. Like the camera angles were awesome. It when you it, give them a chance to run, get out and run without a ton of commercials, it's amazing what they're capable of. The Wednesday, Thursday, like each night, it was in prime time. It was they they bobbed and weaved with with. They had a fog delay. They went an hour or two hours longer than they were planning on with the TV schedule. They didn't make any compromises. I, it was awesome. I loved it. And when there's that many, like, there's that much character development to where I didn't know who 95% of these ladies were going into Wednesday night or Thursday night. And when you give them a few hours to tell the stories and when they do the research and talk to the college coaches and talk to the swing coaches, like, you know, Burkowski or Lerner, they're talking to, you know, Chris Como or they're talking to Jan Dowling from Michigan or Justin Silverstein from USC. Like it, it's truly like they're they're truly trying to educate the viewer and it makes a big difference and and then you add Chambers Bay to it which like holy shit man like the, even the little stuff like the hard camera cuz I'm watching right now and they they're they're on the 8th hole and they have a camera that's set up behind the green up at the top of the hill and it shows they can zoom in it shows the entire hole and then they can pan it over and show the rest of the golf course they can show the ninth i mean it's little things like that that go the extra mile to make the broadcast really good and worth watching and I I couldn't agree more, TC. Like, golf did a great job this week. Well, it makes the, the venue matter that much more. Exactly. Like if you can give people a sense of place, like going to Chambers and not really doing it justice and make you want to go play it and give you a sense of what the players are dealing with some of the shots. The, I thought the pins at times were like ridiculously hard, but really interesting for match play of like, Wait, and they did it a- like the, like the, the quarter, like yeah. the, the, the round of 16 or the round of eight, instead of just saving it for the finals, which I thought was cool. Yeah. It was like, dude, this is up on a knob, but like, Hey, one of you two is going to just figure it out. Like, is this a stroke play pin? No, but just don't aim at it, but try to figure out how to get up and in. And, uh, course played awesome. I mean, the new greens are great. It was playing, you know, mega firm, like the lag putting, you had to be creative as hell. It looks both crispy and green at the same time, which <laughs> yeah. is wild. Uh, yeah, I, I, kept te- I kept text or I told you guys before we, we came on, there's been like 14 different times this week. I just kind of constantly had it on in the background where I look up and I'm like, Whoa, where is that? <laughs> I'm like, Oh, it's Chambers Bay again. Like this is, looks like the coolest freaking golf course in America. It's, it's unbelievable. It, it's going to be a tragic Tragic situation, I think, if Chambers Bay becomes a, a one and done on the in at least in the men's pro game. They're right? booked I up mean, to it, like twenty seventy five though. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I think U.S. Women's Open there. Maybe I, you know, I know the USGA tends to do that on the men's side at least. Kind of have the USAM six, seven, eight years before they announce like a a 
men's U.S. Open uh, at a place, and obviously with them booked up in so many different places, maybe they're thinking that on the U.S. Women's Open side, which would be really cool. But uh, yeah, it's I, I don't blast. I don't care what tournament they play here; they just need to play more televised golf here because I will watch all of it. Yeah, and it's also a you know I know the answer to this of you know you need, you need to pay the players, but also a big question is why is amateur golf that much easier to watch than pro golf, like or easier to produce, like a really good quality product. And uh, I know you got to sell commercials, to pay the purses, and all that stuff. But it just was a question of like, dude, this is this yeah. is amazing what they're able to do storytelling wise with a, a with oh. with shout out Rolex for giving us un- uninterrupted coverage yeah. all week. That's long. what I was gonna say. Yeah, I know it's. It's impossible to overstate the effect of that. Still haven't right? bought and a it, Rolex yet, but super thankful for them every time they do that. We could all pull our money and maybe get one to share. <laughs> and also just, I mean, some of the, you know, I thought the semis and the finals were probably the the weakest golf of it all. Like I thought the round of 32 or the round of 16, round of eight, like it's just some tenacity out there. Uh, Monet Chun, like her story is unbelievable. Kind of like was in deep, deep, deep in the wilderness. Um, you know, almost like quit the game basically. And then uh, I loved watching Amari Avery. Like she's, I guess, the next big, big thing. Once she learns how to control her spin and just clean some things up, she's got power for days. Uh, Catherine Rao was awesome. Brandon Avarosa. Uh, Rachel Kuhn's mom was a bit much for me. There it is. Um, but but no, I mean overall, I don't know. I just I thought it was I thought it was such a like it was such a credit to golf, right? And like I was on the fence of we've got some friends having an event on our message board, having an event out there next month. And I'm like, fuck it. I'm going out there. Like that's like no brainer. What are the dates? I would like to go. We can talk about that offline. Yeah. That's uh, a fantastic tournament. And, uh, and now we're rolling right into men's USAM. And uh, they had a bunch of local caddies, which like a place that like, so Bo, the caddy that, that we had in our group, uh, like he was unbelievable. And like, that's the kind of place where you want to have a local caddy. Well, I think it's it's probably tr- time to transition into uh, the, not that we didn't bring Job in for uh, for what what he's contributed so far, but what we, there's a reason we, we're making the call to the bullpen. If the trumpets are sounding and Diaz is coming in from the bullpen, before we get to that, uh, when personal finance connects you to both your funds and the stuff that matters, that's money and that's Cash App. You know what else is money? Choosing your own cash tag. Uh, I had a buddy once that sent me. We had a ten dollar closest to the pen bet. And he um, basically he was like, I bet you this other guy hits it closer than you do. And the other guy was like a 20 handicap. And as soon as he hit the shot, he sent me a $10 request for the money. And it rattled me. It absolutely rattled me. So that's going <laughs> to be my sick. move for bets now is to uh, to send the, send the request in early. The chloroform ball off the first tee, I, Neil submitted that one. He said, that's money. I don't, I'm not quite sure that one adds up for me. Uh, that's money for the other person. Yeah. Ten, it tends to be. Cam Smith leaving for live. Uh, I believe money's involved there. That's money. <laughs> Henrik Stenson monetizing the Ryder Cup captaincy. That's money. This is actually not the copy they sent over, but uh, they gave us some leeway with this one. Patrick Reed flying around the world for a T31. That's money. That's probably a lot That's of money, money spent there. Uh, lawyers charging, and Joe might be able to fill us in on this, probably like $5,000 an hour to live. That's money. Uh, you guys have no idea the invoice you're getting at the end of this podcast. <laughs> sending, That's spending. True. You need, to wrap, you need yeah. to wrap up these examples. Joe's, Joe's clock is ticking. Sending, spending, saving, investing, splitting, tipping, donating, gifting, or just typing numbers all in a single finance app. That's money. That's Cash App. It's fantastic. I use it every single day, multiple times a day. Download Cash App from the App Store or Google Play Store today to add your cash tag to the 80 million and counting using the app. And when you use code NLU, get a free $15 plus $10 goes to Youth On Course. And thanks to Cash App, helping us raise a bunch of money on top of uh, Neil's 100 hole hike that was a, a donate donation to Youth On Course as well. So appreciate their support. 
All right, Job, what the hell are you doing here? Uh, and I, I'm, I'm, I'll admit, I, I sent Job like, the agenda earlier this week and kind of said, you, you run the show here. You, 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 point at, you point us where we need to be. You, uh, you're taking a lot of pressure off us in terms of delivering the goods on what went down this week. Wait, wait, that, that hearing was like three weeks ago, right? I, it, it seems <laughs> like it was, of course. But uh, first, first question, uh, after you uh, kind of give us some background on yourself, first of all, was uh, is, the, uh, is Judge Freeman the MVP this week? Oh God. All right. Just quick intro. Like I, I am a business litigation attorney in Florida. I don't practice in California. I do not practice antitrust law because the companies that care about antitrust law are the same companies that can pay their lawyers thousands of dollars an hour to argue about antitrust law. You know, it's crucial that I give you guys a little bit of context that I'll be critical of what I saw from an advocacy standpoint, um, from a lawyering standpoint, but I'm not going to be overly critical of the credentials or qualifications or accomplishments of the lawyers who we saw arguing this week, because all of them are far smarter from, you know, and, and far more experienced. I think where, you know, what what's important to begin on Tuesday, the TRO hearing temporary restraining order, let's distinguish between what we saw on Tuesday and then what it means for the overall case, right? A motion for a temporary restraining order is essentially the opening salvo of what is going to be a years long legal battle unless the live I'm going to call them the live lawyers the live players lawyers uh, dismiss this case and try to start over somewhere else this is this is the only question that was before the judge was can Taylor Gooch Matt Jones and Hudson Swafford these play three, these three poor kids the, the, the three poor kids these poor boys can they play on on Thursday uh, this week in the FedEx Cup that's it and so from there it, it has implications for the larger case because you have to get a little bit into the weeds of what the likelihood of success of the merits of the overall suit will be to make a decision for the judge. But what we saw on Tuesday was just the very, very narrow issue of the, could those guys play to your question about is judge Freeman, the goat, uh, the MVP. I mean, she, she certainly had a very good grasp of the facts and more than that, the stakes. I thought that her grasp of what it meant um, even though it was a smaller issue, it was a smaller issue for the players because it was limited to only those three players. But for the tour, you know, had the judge granted the TRO motion and essentially told the players there's no recourse. The tour has no recourse. If you want to play in both sides, that would have been a nuclear bomb for the tour. So uh, her, her understanding of the facts and what was at stake was was very good to see. Well, and I don't want to gloss past that because with the timeline at which this was brought to her attention and they made the kind of joke to start off the hearing was basically like she had this weekend, the weekend and rolling into Tuesday on top of what I would imagine a very to be a very full docket and schedule. Uh, and how I, you made a, you some posts on our message board that was kind of going through the play by play as well of how. Not easy it is to get this in front of a federal judge and express the emergency that was at stake here, which is these three poor kids might not be able to play the FedEx Cup. So in federal court, much like, I mean, in state court too, but especially in federal court, you are not entitled to a hearing on anything. Um, certain local rules. Especially may, on a civil trial, Especially right? in, yes, let's also distinguish between civil and criminal. Criminal, there are, you know, are more constitutional due process concerns. There's still due process in a civil litigation as well. But in federal court, you often don't get hearings on anything. Uh, you know, you can submit, I could submit a motion, my opponent will submit a response, and then we might not hear anything for months, and then one day we get an order in our inbox, and that's that's what it is. Uh, you can always request a hearing, but they're, they're not always given. Um, and then more than that, for the judge to give them a hearing and to give them a hearing within several days, and then to understand that she had to make a decision within a day, 
Um, and, in, and in fact, she ruled from the bench, which is also quite rare. Um, that it goes, and we'll get into this, but it goes to the advocacy, the quality of the advocacy for the plaintiff's attorneys that you are telling this judge that it is such an emergency that you hear what I have to say um, that, you know, you, you have to have a very cogent and persuasive argument. If you're going to tell a judge, clear your entire calendar so that you can hear what I have to tell you. And that, so you can make this decision on behalf of these, of these plaintiffs. Um, and so it kind of goes into the plaintiff's argument, just really not being particularly persuasive and the advocacy, not being particularly persuasive. Which they are coming in and the plaintiffs have to, uh, what, what do they have to prove? Right. I hear irreparable harm was, was used a lot. And I was, again, I don't know how these things go, but I was, for one, I found this entire hearing to be incredibly entertaining one, because I think it was like this, the culmination of pretty much everything we've talked about on the show for the last two years of watching this debate happen in real life and watching the lawyers argue their side and, and, and things like that. But I was surprised, I guess, that before the lawyers had even presented their cases based solely on the, the complaint that was filed by the live attorneys uh, and then a response that was filed by the PJ uh, tour attorneys as well, that the judge walked in and basically said, like, I don't really see irreparable harm here to start with before you even have tried your case here. I, the first five minutes was electric. It was. She just was. And I, I, I the command, I guess I was also just in awe of um the command that she had over the case that had, again, had just come to her desk and her ability to, uh, I don't want to say pay attention to the whole thing, but to understand the, the like literally every single word that was going on. It's like, oh, wait, do you mean 7C or 7E here? Like blah, blah, blah. To be able to run the show, she could have made the case, uh, both the plaintiff and defense case better than either of those attorneys did. That's true. I mean, it's very likely that uh, Judge Freeman is either a golfer herself or she has a golfer on her law clerk staff who's been following this or someone in her social circles uh, is is a big golfer, a professional golf fan, and could give her some background on this. Um, she's also very smart. Uh, you know, she most federal judges are. She went to uh, Harvard Law School and she's probably a very adept at speed reading at this point. And she has a, a team of law clerks that would give her really the the meat and potatoes of what she needed to know that could get kind of weed through the 106 page complaint and the motion for TRO. And then the thousand plus pages of exhibits that were filed with both of those, but uh, not the footnotes, but absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> oh my oh. God. Was sick. You know, I don't read. You footnotes. know, I don't Which, read. Footnotes. All right. So, so Gibson Dunn was on the plaintiffs. Correct. So that was the plaintiff. One of the, like Gibson, one of their five firms. I'm Gibson sure Dunn, had. Quinn Emanuel. Um, so, I think so Baker McKenzie told that the big dick players from Quinn, you know, on the bench kind of, well, let's. So Quinn Emanuel is is known as a litigation powerhouse, but they do, you know, they're a full service. All these big, you know, quote unquote big law or white shoe law firms, they're all made up of very very good lawyers, very experienced lawyers that are, you know, the partners that are going to be the ones that are actually litigating these cases. I mean, the associates do a lot of the legwork and a lot of the drafting and research, but it's always going to be a partner that's quite experienced, and particularly in antitrust law because it's such a niche practice area. Um, and it's, so there's, there's only really like a handful of big firms that are really have partners qualified enough to, to handle these sorts of, but I guess based on like the people I've talked to, like, it's, it's shocking. All the lawyers are reaching out being like, well, here, here's my thoughts. Here's my thoughts. And sussing through some of You're that, welcome. <laughs> sussing through some of that and be like, Hey, like, I know like a few people reached out and they're like, Hey, like Rachel Brass is on the is on the, you know, kind of the second or third chair for Gibson Dunn on this case. She practices in San Francisco. 
She's extremely well qualified. She probably has argued in front of this judge before. And seemingly the guy that they that they had arguing the case started following golf two weeks ago and shit down his leg a little bit. I thought he was going to talk his way into his, his the plaintiffs going to federal prison. Like I, I, thought, <laughs> I thought it went that It was po- a terrible performance. I thought it went that poorly for it's him. It's certainly not something that he and his partners are, are glad was on video. Let's put it that way. I mean, here... There was a lot that you asked in your previous question, Solly, that I kind of want to back up, and it'll, sure. it'll it'll play into this. So it goes back to, you know, what is at stake in this hearing? And Rob Walters was the attorney for the plaintiffs that was arguing. He is not actually a barred California lawyer. He is barred in Texas and D.C., so they actually flew him out to California to make this argument, which was a little bit surprising because he said – to the judge, I don't, you know, I'm not much of a golfer. And it's like, yeah, we know because you don't think you, you don't even know the FedEx cups are the, the one thing that you are so desperate for your clients to play in. You don't know that it's three tournaments and not one, you know, you don't, he, he very obviously mixed up the Arnold Palmer invitational and, and the Memorial by saying the API is in Ohio. Like how many lawyers play golf? And you could, you found the one, <laughs> the one guy to argue the golf case that doesn't play golf. I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was a little bit surprising. And I mean, on that front too, like it just seemed like that was the weirdest part about the beginning of it was, you know, the, the plaintiffs are trying to argue how like they're basically what the tour has been trying to tell us about the FedEx cup for the last 16 years. Like, yo, like you guys don't this understand. The Super Bowl. This is the Super Bowl and the Kentucky Derby and the NBA finals all rolled into one. This is as big as it gets. And then Which was so good too, because like the tour on the other side is just like, Oh, judge, like we have no chance. Look at how many of these big names they've taken. We can't be, we can't be a monopoly. Like what's, it's just so funny to see those two going back and forth at each other. Let's talk a little bit about persuasive advocacy, because when you were in the judge's courtroom, you were there as an invited guest and the judge is primarily going to rely on the written briefings throughout the entire case. Doesn't matter what topic is in front of the judge, but not the footnotes, but not the footnotes. Uh, yeah. So you always have to be very cognizant that whatever you put in writing is going to be the most persuasive thing. And when you were in court for a hearing, you were there to answer the judge's questions, period. The most persuasive advocacy is when a judge, like what happened in this case, Judge Freeman opens the hearing by saying, here's the way I'm leaning. These are the concerns I have. This is what I want you to talk to me about. And then for both, and this goes to the tours lawyer too, for Correct. both of them to be like, I have a 60 page PowerPoint slide <laughs> judge and let's go to page 40. It's like, what the f-? guys, the judge said she was concerned about, um, you know, let's just pick a topic. She was concerned about the group boycott, uh, aspect of antitrust, which that's not exactly what she said, but for you to get up there and not immediately start answering those questions to her satisfaction, because you want to be so stuck to your notes um, that you kind of just start talking yourself in circles. And, and this, the same thing happened to the PGA tour lawyer to Elliot Peters, who again, California lawyer of the year, a few years, like very, very qualified lawyers, um, who should know better than to just get completely stuck to their notes because they don't have the subject matter expertise. They don't have the, 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 the business, the inherent business knowledge about how these connections are made, um, within the golf landscape to say, Judge Taylor Gooch, if he doesn't play this week, he's not going to get another chance to play in the majors, and that's what's irreparable. Don't focus on the fact that he took yeah. all this money to pl- to not play in the FedEx Cup because that is something you can quantify. But maybe a winning, a closer to a winning argument would have been if he doesn't play this week, he may not ever play in another major because of the way the OWGR works, because of all these other opportunities that he's not going to get, 
And it's like a domino effect versus and, just but, strictly monetary. Correct. But because he doesn't understand, because the lawyer didn't understand how those connections are made, he didn't ever have a chance of making a persuasive argument on that front. Mm. And so you get back to, okay, well, what do my notes say? Something about Jack Nicholas, something about API, something about the Super Bowl. Uh, <laughs> yeah, judge. Yeah. You know, these three, the poor boys, they're not going to be able to play next week. Not a persuasive argument. So it, fa- fast forward a little bit. Obviously they, they, were denied, or I don't even know which way that goes. They they weren't able to play, obviously. Denied. What would have ha- what would have happened if they were able to play? As far as the other guys who were not part of the suit, does that basically just like set the precedent, or is that just strictly like those three are allowed to play because they won in court? How does how would that work? So it would have been those three would have been allowed to play this week, um, but then going forward until the end of the case that would have been the law of the case. So, yeah. and, and so any other players that were thinking about considering jumping to live would have been able to do so and then also play in tour events, at least while the pendency of the litigation was going on because the judge has said, uh, essentially, I think it, it would be irreparably harmful. And we'll go back to, Saul, you want to talk about the elements and we can get into that, but it would be, it would be so egregiously harmful, a real cognizable harm for these players not to be able to play in the FedEx Cup or in any other PGA Tour events um, and this case is going to go on for several years, most likely. And so it would have been a nuclear bomb on the tour. And I think that the judge understood that. Um, I'm not saying that she kind of backdoored her decision-making, but I think she was approaching it from the, from the place of the worst outcome for these litigants without even getting a tour, the tour's actual response to the lawsuit yet, right? They only responded to the motion for temporary restraining order. They have a certain amount of time, 21 days, 60 if they accept service, to respond to the complaint itself, which they'll probably do by motion to dismiss. And the judge was very clear that she was not going to get into the meat of the antitrust issues, which she thinks may be a close call. Um, So for her to rule in this way to say, you know, for now, we're just going to keep the status quo the way it is, um, was kind of, I think, where she was approaching it from, and then reverse engineering the legal argument to get there. I, I don't know if I realized, I guess, the stakes in terms of uh, how much downstream effect this ruling would have had. I guess I kind of thought this was about these three guys playing the playoffs, and that if anybody else wanted to play anything else, they would have had to sue uh, on different grounds in a different way. But you're saying that if, if this would have passed... The precedent, if you will, that's probably not the right it word. Is the right word. Okay, yep. would have allowed either paved the way for everyone else to play whatever event they would have wanted, or you would have seen a lot more players joining Live and then you know either filing similar lawsuits or moving for leave of court to add themselves as loss as uh, litigants to the lawsuit. Mm. Um, the the players that resigned did not have the same argument uh, because they gave they gave up their membership. But a player like Cam Smith could look at that and say, well. Uh, as long as this lawsuit's going on, I'm going to be able to play both. So I'll just throw my name. I'll you know move for leave uh, and to join as an as an intervener. I don't think he'd technically be an intervener, but as another plaintiff in the lawsuit in order to preserve his rights to do the same thing. Quick update: Saki Baba just won eleven and nine. Hell yeah! Oh, so just just tying a bow on that. Nice. Unbelievable. But I was pissed when the John Deere started catching strays. Yeah, they were they were <laughs> firing shots off at the John Deere. John Deere, the the, the uh, Byron Nelson, which more power to him. You can shit all over Craig Ranch. No, I think the um, and then you know like like it was it, it was also kind of um, like impressed upon me. I'm like, oh shit, this is like very very immediate effect. Like when when I heard. Hudson Swafford and 
uh, was it HUD, HUD and Taylor Gooch are like down the street, like waiting, yeah. waiting from. Uh, they were in Memphis, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, dude, like they were gonna, like, they were gonna they, show up Tuesday night. They were gonna show up and like go to the range and get a practice, like a nine hole practice loop in. I mean, it's it'd be easy to to armchair this and say that you know there was that the the PJ Tour players have a pretty good argument, and they might on some of these issues. But it, we should also be clear that it's very, very difficult to get a temporary restraining order in federal court. It's it's a what's called extraordinary relief. I mean, the judges approach it from the position of you're not going to get this unless you can prove that you have an injury that cannot be compensated by money, period. Uh, injunctive relief is there's there's legal relief, which is money damages, and then there's equitable relief. And this is equitable relief, meaning that you have to show that money cannot compensate you if you lose, um, or I'm sorry, if you win. And so the reason why it, you know, she, the judge kind of came in guns a blazing, um, against the, the plaintiffs was to say, you know, I think that you have serious concerns with your downstream case. Um, and I, and I have to look at those issues to make a determination today. So I want to hear about how you're going to overcome those issues. And we just never really got quality argument from the plaintiff about that. Um, and then the other thing is the plaintiff bears the burden of persuasion. So what that means is the plaintiff has to prove their case. The defendant does not have to disprove the plaintiff's case. They have to poke holes in it if they think that the plaintiff's case is really good and that they've they forcefully made their case. But the most persuasive thing that the tour lawyers could have done, you know, could have just basically stood up and said, well, to himself, I recognize that the plaintiff's lawyer is flailing around, doesn't know anything about this, make three or four good rebuttal points, directly address some of the judge's questions to the other side with what you want to get in and then sit down and don't say anything more because the longer you talk, the more you're going to invite questions from the judge, which really almost got the tour lawyers in trouble with the timeliness issue and, and the suspensions issue. So take me to what, let's just go back to the, the plaintiffs for now. What is, what's the most compelling argument that they made here? And I don't know if that's a good bridge way into saying like, what is, what is at uh, what is the deciding factor here? What what caused the decision to end up being what it was? That's probably two different questions. But. Well, so the judge, the most compelling argument was really kind of made by the judge, um, but it was that the tour was inconsistent with how it applied its own bylaws in order to arrive at a suspension for the th the three players that were the TRO plaintiffs. I mean, basically, the tour used two parallel mechanisms in its bylaws in order to effectuate these suspensions. And the, the plaintiffs are saying, and the judge was kind of agreeing with them that the tour was not very clear in how it communicated, how it was applying the laws to Taylor Gooch in particular, and that Taylor was uh, Taylor understood the suspension mechanism and the appeal process, critically the appeal process to, to be one thing where the appeal would essentially stay or invalidate the suspension until the actual appeal was heard and decided. And the PJ tour said, no, 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 no. We used one section to punish you for essentially conduct unbecoming and another section to punish you by putting you on probation for being a repeat offender of the rules by constantly playing in these events without releases. And under that latter section, there is no appeal of the suspension or there, there, the appeal process, there's no stay of the appeal of the suspension. And that's why you can't play this week. And, you know, really that was kind of the most compelling argument that was made. Um, and 
the that's judge. That's where it seemed like the tour lawyer struggled to get that point across. It lost me in that part, and I'm, I was like, I'm kind of rooting for you guys here. Yeah. You, you have spun a web that I'm very confused in now. The point was made much clearer in the brief, which goes back to what I was saying about the brief being the more persuasive argument. And the longer the tour lawyer, Elliot Peters, stood there and talked, the more he invited these questions, yes. right? Like, you can't stand up, and, and, and this was another thing he did. The judge said, what I'm really concerned about, I can't exactly remember what the issue was. It was one of the minor antitrust issues, more more minor antitrust issues. And he said, oh, oh judge, I'm going to get there. Believe me, I can't wait to talk about that. But like, first I want to talk, talk about it. Yeah, yeah, it's like the judge is asking, is telling you, this is the thing that I care about. Like, don't grandstand. Yeah, yeah, and you're standing here because your, your client is sitting at the table, paying you an awful lot of money to be here, and you want to give them a show. And I understand that that's the case, but the more persuasive advocacy is always just to answer the question that's asked immediately and then stop talking. When you're winning, the only thing that you can gain by talking is more questions that are going to poke holes in your own argument. You know, He won before he walked in that day, and it didn't get any better for the plaintiffs while he, while he was sitting there kind of like man spreading, you know, like he's yeah. laying weight. It was a horrible, <laughs> visual, horrible visual. Like you're in, you're in federal fucking court, like sit there with your hands clasped at your, at your desk and pay attention. And yeah, I mean, whatever. So like, Joe, on the back end, because there's, you know, like because they didn't get this, this TRO, let's say there's a civil case on the back end that these guys are a party to. Does this, create liability for the tour like on the back end to where you know like monetary damages to where gooch matt jones these guys the fact that they didn't get into this event that kind of the clock is ticking now on like they can kind of toll up these these fines or these you know these lost wages Potentially. I mean, it's, it's a fine line for the plaintiffs to tread because they also, the, the judge denied the temporary restraining order without prejudice to seek a preliminary injunction, which is another, it's essentially a, a temporary restraining order, but with more facts and evidence. Um, it's, it's, an, it's still injunctive relief and the elements are very, very similar. And you still have to prove that you have no adequate remedy at law, aka money damages. So in order to you know obtain injunctive relief down the road, they have to kind of tread a fine line between what they believe they can be compensated for and what they don't. I mean, this case, you know, ultimately will probably come down to it, it definitely will come down to whether the antitrust uh, you know allegations as far as like a group boycott. I think you talked about that with Will Bardwell last week. I mean, that's probably like the tour or the the, the live plaintiff's best argument under the Sherman Antitrust Act, which again, I'm not an antitrust lawyer, can't emphasize that enough. And to clarify, just based on what we just heard, it sounded like the judge was like, put a, like, put a bookmark on that. Like, I'm ready to have that conversation when it gets to it. We're not going to talk about this today, but like- It's like Davis that, Love, like, shut up. Yeah, that seems like, hey, there might be something there. We'll we'll discuss that in the future because that's going to take a lot longer. It, it will, that. and it provides, and so the, the other thing about the, the end of the uh, hearing, which I did not get to watch, I had to leave to pick my daughter up, so I was kind of following- through on it later, but um, I think she made the point of you, um, you, the, you, the parties can either try to litigate this case on a fast track within like a year, or it's going to be two plus years before this gets to trial. And ordinarily, um, the plaintiff wants wants to get the case to trial as fast as possible yeah. in almost every circumstance. But in this case, after this ruling, they probably don't, and it's kind of reversed. And so, what I thought might happen is that the tour would file a motion to dismiss, which they probably still will do in response to the actual complaint. But it's an interesting strategic 
thought process because they could just say, you know what, we don't want to drag this out any longer. We have a judge that's on our side. And the sooner we answer the complaint, the sooner we provide a response that's not moving to get rid of it, uh, the sooner we can start discovery, the sooner we can start these case management deadlines, and let's fast track this thing to trial. And it also makes it a lot harder for the plaintiff to voluntarily dismiss the case and then go forum shop it elsewhere. So the, the tour's got an interesting strategic yeah, uh, analysis to go through now. That's, like, that's what I was going to ask about. A, why, why, the, why Northern California? Is that just somewhere that has been uh, you know, historically friendly to antitrust or, or? Well, it's it's an interesting place to be because there is a lot of antitrust litigation that goes on there because, because of, of Silicon stuff. Valley. Yeah. But, um, and, and it's also, you would think, uh, typically more liberal judges of which Judge Freeman is an Obama appointee. And that's not, not to say that she's... Keep your politics no, out no, of no, my no. damn sports, <laughs> Joe! Uh, she, you know, she... Uh, she personally has actually made some some antitrust rulings that would have been you know like, kind of more negative it's like in favor of Google or something. Right? Correct. I read about one, but yeah. you know, I would have thought that there would have been a few uh, places that might have made a lot of sense. Northern District of California would be one. Uh, Southern District of New York, where New York City is, would be would have been another. The District of Delaware, which a lot of uh, business litigation happens there, and um, you know maybe like the. Uh, District of District Columbia, where you have like very, you know, kind of highfalutin federal judges that are well versed in federal law, especially antitrust law. So Northern District of California kind of made sense. I saw a lot of people saying, well, why didn't they just sue, you know, the tour in Florida? Well, because they would get home fielded <laughs> most yeah. likely in the middle of district of Florida. Plus there's not a lot of antitrust litigation that goes on in Jacksonville or Tampa or Orlando. So it's not exactly like a place where you're going to be likely to draw a, a, a good judge that has a, that much of a grasp of the issue. But on that front, like what's the, so what's their, Basically, you're talking about like venue shopping or talking about like what would need to happen? Would they need to come with a different class, like a different class of guys or a different class of plaintiffs with the same issue or, you know, like basically dismiss it in that case and then help me. Yeah. Is this is this Judge Freeman's case until further notice? Right. That's because it seems like it felt like that was a bad draw for them. Right. It's it's her case unless the plaintiffs dismiss it voluntarily and then so, they can refile anywhere else. So there's. Under the federal rules of, of civil procedure, Rule Forty One, you can the plaintiffs can dismiss it, and it doesn't operate as what's called an adjudication on the merits as long as they do so before an answer is filed. Essentially, so there's no there's no precedent then set at all. It just it basically just wipes it completely off the uh, slate. Other than what people, you know, any other like predetermined uh, thoughts or biases that any judge would have knowing what this case is about, but it, but in effect, no. Uh, it would it would be a, a, a clean slate. And then the other thing that to discourage this, you know, they say um, before the plaintiff can proceed it, you know, with a different case, they have to pay the attorney's fees for the other side, which for a lot of litigants would be uh, essentially impossible um, to pay, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to the other side. But with who's funding this case, that's not really <laughs> consideration. There's no there's no deterrent there. It's crazy, like reading about these law firms to like the, you know, Skadden or, or or the uh, the one that the Elliot dude yeah, is Kecker Van Ness and Peters yeah like you yeah. know like he was he was Lance Armstrong's attorney <laughs> like uh, the Quinn Emanuel like they're they're these they're are, basically Elon Musk's attorney going very, after Twitter <laughs> very serious law firms with very serious very smart lawyers um, who who absolutely know what they're doing 
which is again why I wanted to preface this by saying that my critiques are of the advocacy <laughs> that I saw, yeah. not of their capabilities yeah. as lawyers, because the drafting is incredible in these cases. It's, the drafting is actually quite persuasive for both sides. But it to me was, uh, this is again not to speak to the larger antitrust case that is coming down the down the road. It just felt like what as soon as that lawyer started talking the live side, I was like, do they? Yeah, that's a pretty damn weak case, right? I mean, it was pretty easy for the tour to say like. Look, they they like straight up took all this extra money. They they the extra money that they were paid to go to live was to help offset knowing that they were gonna not be able to play in this. Like it just felt like a lot of the live boasting that has gone on to this point and a lot of what has happened and the success of being able to recruit all these players made it pretty easy to shut down like this hardship case that they're trying to drive of all oh, these three poor boys. Again, those are the lawyer's words. Uh, what I keep saying that, if you don't know that, he said these three poor kids won't be able to play in the FedEx Cup playoffs. And it just felt like, man, it was just kind of walking through a door for the tour Which to kind of shut that is, part down. It's like, you know, at that point with, with the money, it's like, all right, yeah, there was harm. And the money made up for it. It's not yeah. irreparable. <laughs> well, and I think, but I think they could have made a better point of like, Listen, the majors are what this is all about, and this is our last chance to get into them for next year. Like, that's it. This is it right here, and you can't replace that with money, and that's where you're saying they spun this whole web and didn't focus in on the immediacy of, like, yeah, if we don't play these, we're not going to be able to play in the majors next year. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's it really comes down to being able to tell a persuasive story and, you know, being able to connect all of those dots, which is – uh, you know, if, if you if you have to if you're the plaintiff, that's the one thing you have to do is have a firm grasp of what's at stake. And it never really felt like what was at stake uh, was an emergency uh, or you know like a real emergency. And when you're there in front of the judge saying, "I'm here because this is an emergency," but I can't even tell you like how many tournaments I want them to be able to play in, um, it just it it falls flat. What also on that front too? What's the um, like? Like, why did Mickelson file separately? Or he has a separate attorney. He has a separate, separate lawyer. Attorney. Okay. I don't know. Could that's, probably just like a personal relationship. You can answer that question on your own. I, I mean, mean that's, just, that's the only way that was so going like, to go with like, It's like, was there a reason why these guys filed you know, per, almost like a personal lawsuit versus having live? Like, it, is that creating more flexibility for live down the line? I don't know. The, the, live, the live aspect is interesting because... I think Bardwell made this point really well. It's it's an op. It might be an optics problem for Liv. Like the optics for the plaintiffs already are not great because they're like these aggrieved multimillionaires um, who are aggrieved because they took millions and millions of more dollars and now they're upset that they can't win millions and millions more. Um, for Liv, I mean, it's the source of the money and the you know the backing of the Saudi government. It almost looks worse potentially. Uh, you know, Liv against a. a a American institution for lack of, I mean, that's really what the PGA tour is. This is kind of what it comes down to. It's an American nonprofit. If we're being exactly raising billions of dollars. Like it's again, it's not necessarily this rosy, but like in court, they're going to make, they're going to lean pretty heavy on like, yeah, we're raising billions of dollars for charities on behalf of these, like on the backs of these players. And to go back to what both of you are saying, like, let's not make this sound like this was a, a great day overall for the PGA Tour because it really wasn't. It was like an I, up and down for par I, on the first hole of seven. Exactly. And I, I posted this on the message board. Like, the, the Tour does not want to be in a lawsuit with these people, okay? No. Like, they know that they had to know that this was coming, but it's not like they want to spend a bunch of money on this. It's not or like do they, discovery. It's not like they want to do discovery. It's not like they want this to be a distraction. It's not like they want people to be talking about it. And it's also not like they wanted their, their lawyer to stand up and say, look, 
our five top players in the PIP have now gone to our competitor. Like, that's not a good look for you, no matter what the case is. And it's going to help us win this case, but, but like, it's like, ultimately, it still looks really, really bad. The house is on fire a little bit over here. <laughs> Which I think my, my favorite moment of the, the day might have been uh, the judge seeing that and then kind of quipping like, oh, you know, a couple more years, maybe you guys could sue them for antitrust. <laughs> yeah. uh, was was an ultimate like, okay, cool. I think I, I think it's pretty clear where this decision's yeah. going today. And the reaction uh, of the reaction of Elliot Peters, which you said that was exactly like the uh, Selena Meyer gif from Veep, where it's like nervously <laughs> laughing, like, well, what, what the, the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, on that note, though, I, I think so. The one thing I, I think we've heard from a bunch of lawyers and and very you know various smart people is. Uh, they probably don't want to go to trial. This is, you know, I think Bardwell kept saying this last week, like they want to settle. They want to settle. They want to settle. They want to settle. I think what I can't really like wrap my head around is like, what does settlement even look like in this? You know what I mean? Like what, what is the, the, the common ground or what, what can they actually like figure out? Because it just seems like if the tour gives up an inch, like it's kind of over. Right. <laughs> I don't, I don't really know if you guys have anything to even, add to that but it's just uh that, that kept going through my head all week i mean the the settlement 99 percent of litigation cases is the defendant pays the plaintiff to make it go away i mean whether they do it because they have actual liability uh because they actually did anything wrong or whether they do it as a business decision they pay a bunch of money and or or no money i mean it, who knows how it, it shakes out but but ultimately most of these things are settled and in this case there's no amount of money that you know, the, the, that can make that the, no matter, no matter how much money the PGA tour can spend uh, to try to settle this case, it pales in comparison to what yeah. is already on the table for these guys. So a settlement is going to have to be, if it is to occur some sort of, some sort of coexistence where, you know, they play on off weeks and the guys could go back and forth or the guys can play a certain number of live events, but then not play in the PGA tour playoffs or whatever the case may be. Um, and to DJ's point, that's, it's untenable for the tour uh, because you know, the tour is gonna, then loses its best fields, you know, on, on these weeks where it, it has tournaments that it is hosting and, well, and nobody wants to play in them. And the value, just, you can't stress enough how much of the value of the PGA tour is derived from the collective marketing it's all, rights. It's all media rights. It's all, yeah. it's everything. Yeah. And, and media rights can, can be a confusing thing for a lot of people and that it, it sounds like NFTs, but it's your it's your ability to play professional. It's play it's your playing golf on television or on some kind of network for entertainment value. And like it's Phil Mickelson for the last however many years could have played on his own tour. He could have made his own exhibition series, and he could have made a lot of money doing it. But the idea, like he got famous on on, on free riding, if you will, which I'm surprised is a legal term. I'm very I thought that was very oh, yeah. uh, ad libbed kind of thing. No, here, it's but, a thing. Like he got, you know, he's competed within this ecosystem for a very long period of time and gotten a lot of notoriety uh, through that. And it, it's just what makes it very complicated. Now, one of the things that the judge said that um, I think the, the larger discussion here is still like what is to come and what kind of ground the PGA Tour stands on from, a, from an antitrust perspective. But one thing that she said was significant evidence that Liv has not been prevented from entering the market. Uh, again, not a lawyer here, but that felt like a pretty significant statement in terms of, um, and I guess I'm a, I'll ask the question along the lines of asking you to help me understand what is anti-competitive behavior and what is competitive behavior? At what point is Liv like a competitor that the PGA Tour needs to beat and what makes their actions legal versus what makes their actions potentially not legal? So 
in an, in an antitrust case, that breaking into the market is often what kind of what turns the case, right? Like if if a if a plaintiff if if a competitor can actually gain market share through its own efforts, regardless of, of if those efforts are just spending so much money that it, it has like nobody has a choice but to pay attention to it, then my limited understanding of antitrust law is that that is very very unlikely that the other party is the the, the defendant the tort in this case is exerting monopoly p- power over the marketplace it may have the largest or the only market share and it may do things that it you know pretends to have a legitimate business business justification for but if those things are ineffective at actually preventing the competitor from entering the space and taking that market share then it goes strongly it weighs strongly against there being an actual antitrust you know, viable antitrust claim. Wouldn't it be also like, doesn't it prove, I know the, like the tour raising their purses. Like if they had a true monopoly on things, they wouldn't even have to do that. Right. That, and that's where I, I wade into this, this category of like, I, I, I know what I'm like rooting for in this case. And am I trying to see things through the rosy glasses of, I, I, I want, I, I would, I think I want the PGA tour to be able to say to these guys, you cannot play on this tour anymore. Right. Because it all comes crumbling down. Yeah. Their whole model comes crumbling down. If that's not the case now, they've not, even if their acts are anti-competitive, they've not been able to prevent guys to go in and leave and working for the other employer. The whole thing is like, you just can't do both. So, and, so here's, here's the, the elements for a, a, a section two, claim for attempted monopolization under the Sherman Antitrust Act. One, the defendant has engaged in predatory or anti-competitive conduct with, two, a specific intent to monopolize, and three, a dangerous probability of achieving monopoly power. It's that third element that is probably going to be the breaking point for this case one way or another, because if no matter what anti-competitive conduct the tour puts forth, Live continues taking market share. It just shows that even if the tour intended to be a monopoly, intended to exert its it's monopoly power, it doesn't get there because they they don't actually prevent the competitor from entering the space. I'm sure my non-existent Twitter will get blown up with antitrust lawyers after that. But I I think that that's what it is. I think it's it's more that it doesn't even if the tour intends to act like a monopoly, if it doesn't actually prevent the competitor for entering the space, then it's not actually a monopoly. Well, I think some of it comes down to uh, like the tour is a monopsony, which is a market situation where there's only a buyer. Like they basically, they're a buyer of labor. They're not a seller of labor and they're the only buyer in that instance. But I would think that it's almost like the ends justify the means, right? Where the ends are that there's this market that wouldn't otherwise exist for these guys, media rights that is, you know, worth billions and billions of dollars uh, for the you know the William McGirts and the Tyler Duncans and all of those guys who are making far more money than they would otherwise, so it's benefiting, you know, a, a like a a wider berth of these guys. B, it's it's probably hurting some of the top players, but that's the reality, and they're getting there through maybe some you know like kind of some monopsonistic. Uh, tendencies or actions here, but the ends do justify the means, I guess. I think you could see it like that. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe that this is, you know, the level at which we're having this conversation, but I think it, and just in talking with you this week too, it just was, I thought it was very, very, very important to have someone on that was able to digest everything that just happened this week. And, uh, and, you know, I guess what, what else, what else stuck out to you from this case that you thought was, you know, important or kind of 
signified what was potentially maybe going to happen down the road. Yeah. So that's one of the questions that was, that came up a lot on the message board. Cause uh, what does this case look like, you know, six months from now, 12 months from now? I mean, it goes back to whether the tour decides to be aggressive in its defense. And um, in this case, being aggressive in its defense is filing an answer and trying to push this thing as fast as possible because they have a judge that they think is, uh, is sympathetic to their point of view, or at least that, that they could win over. Um, and if that's the case, you know, federal, even in federal court, though, the judges are loath to extend deadlines and to continue trials, but it does happen. You know, if the, if the live plaintiffs keep this going, I don't think that there's any chance that this gets resolved in the next 18 months. It's probably not going to get resolved in the next two to three years. Which seems like a great thing for the PGA Tour because, I mean, even if it, let's say it gets solved a year from now, a year where these guys can't play in OWGR events, like they are going to tank in the rankings. And everybody that's not ex- have exemptions in the majors is going to be gone out of majors. And they won't even have to rely on the majors to make up any other rules. And the, the, they're wait, I feel like Liv is waiting to be able to include the majors into this, the cabal of, of you know, anti competitive behavior. But like if they need to just wait it out until then, they won't even need that. It seems like to me. And two other things there too. It's like the, it's going to give the tour even more time to get their house in order as far as schedule wise, taking care of top players, other, you know, like it's that many more pack meetings to get stuff approved, to get the structure changed a little bit. Um, and then B, I think there's just the, 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 the semblance too of like, you know, Fred Ridley and Augusta national are getting dragged into this. There's other, like, like he's going to get deposed if this thing keeps going, Mike Wan's going to get deposed. Like, these guys don't want to, you know, hop in front of a federal court and and talk about this stuff. Like it's getting into their business. Now, Fred, and Fred Fred Ridley runs in the same circles as all these other big law firms. He's a exactly. partner at Foley and Lardner, which is another huge and, national law firm. And, and so I think that's where like you start fucking around with Augusta National and like they like they're they're gonna turn like they're gonna be even more hostile towards live than they than they already have been if you start messing around with their business and all that. That's just how shit works, right? Well, yeah. I mean, there, there's the the legal reality and the practical reality, and the practical realities are going to move a lot faster than the legal realities, just because of you know civil litigation being a very slow churning machine. What do you think of the news that the Justice Department is potentially investigating the tour for this? How much stock do you put into that? I I don't know what to what level of credence to give it. I mean, it sounds like. Um, you know, there's 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 a difference between like an inquiry, like essentially sending a letter saying, like, "Hey, we're keeping tabs. We're on keeping this. tabs on this." Or can you, uh, you know, basically as a, as a shot across the bow? Um, because ordinarily, if the Justice Department is building a case, um, unless they are telling you, they they don't reach out to the person they're, or the organization they're building a case against unless they're like very very close to the end of it and they're giving you like the one chance to come clean or set the record straight or pr- produce documents that, sh- you know, that sort of thing. You know, if there's, com- if there's been conversations between Jay Monahan and the justice department, I would say that it's either not a big deal or it's not very far along at all. Um, but I, again, I'm, or the, I, or somebody's trying to get it out there showing that the justice department is like, you know maybe. what? Hey, like you're sticking up for live instead of, instead of the PGA tour, this American institution, like, why would you, I mean, it, that's a bold play to, yeah. to 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 look in the face of the Justice Department and and uh, and, and like a hungry you know yeah. AG or assistant AG trying to get antitrust stuff 
you know, done. Uh, what's the like? Seems, seems like busy times at the Justice Department. Just yeah, for what right. Worth. <laughs> what? So, Job, your, thought, your thoughts on that, Job? <laughs> Job, also like, like what? Like, How does the Espionage Act fit into the into Liv's claim? Does the tour, uh, like, like, what would you have told the tour if they were your client six months ago, twelve months ago, eighteen months ago? Like, what's the risk that there's? Like, what do they have to do as far as protecting text messages or emails or producing this documentation and communications? Is yeah. it going to come out? Yeah, uh, the fact that the tour pays us tons of money, is that going to come out in, in, in Discovery? <laughs> I'm freaking well, out over here. Again, like I said at the beginning, none of this is legal advice. So, <laughs> um, I mean, there's there's definitely what's... Uh, the tour's been put on what's called a litigation hold. I'm sure they were sent a demand letter uh, a long time ago that says... You know, essentially all of your electronically stored information, including but not limited to these following 30 laundry list of items. Slack, Outlook, (laughs) all that. Suspend all your archiving, suspend all your deletion, like that sort of thing. That's a a very standard practice. I mean, you get into uh, what's called spoliation of evidence. If you get rid of things or magically lose things that you were supposed to have that are relevant. And ordinarily what comes out of that is if the other side can prove that is you... That like, is that like obstruction it, then? Or? It could be... Well, it's obstruction if it's a criminal matter. and a civil matter, you get an adverse inference against you uh, that they can tell the jury. They don't have these documents that they absolutely should have that we say say these things. So you can believe that those documents existed at one time and that they say exactly what we are telling you they say. Um, but you got to go through like a lot of legal mechanisms to get to the point where you can actually say that to a jury. I, we, we've t- we kind of summarized a lot of stuff uh, over the course of this, but I highlighted a couple things from the actual decision that I thought were 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 noteworthy. If Give it to me. Yeah. The this came from the, from Judge Freeman said the plaintiff's own expert indicated that PGA Tour members that have already elected to participate in live golf events required large upfront payments, at least in part because their calculus included the loss of opportunities to earn ranking points and to earn entry into majors. That's where the case turned. I mean, that's where this, dis- not the case, that's where this motion decision turned. There was an exchange between the judge and the lawyer for the plaintiffs that basically said, well, why didn't they just wait till the end of the year? And the lawyer very candidly, in the worst possible way he could have phrased it, <laughs> said, because they would have foregone an opportunity to maximize their market value. Like, that's the point. They are being paid a ton of money now so that they would forego the money that's being handed out at the end of the FedEx Cup playoffs. And a true Dodge Draper situation. Both of these pots of money don't exist. That's what the money is for. (laughs) It's one or the other. Yeah. And so, you know, that was, I mean, credit to their their lawyer for being candid to the court. You have to. Um, But I wouldn't have probably phrased it that way. Well, how much did that attorney misspeak or not have his facts together? Like, have we solved this yet on the on the issue of so netting against these bonuses? Yeah. So I think he he I don't know what he meant, but he made a statement about the winnings being recouped against the contract. Yeah. If you guys, if there's one reason why I want this case to go forward, other than just like the courtroom drama, which isn't going to happen again for a long time, it's because there was a question, there was a, a lot of talking at the very beginning of the hearing about whether the tours lawyer could speak openly about, about the the live contracts contracts. because those contracts are in evidence. And if you, if you read the, uh, the response of the tour, there were a couple sections that were redacted and those sections were redacted because it's talking about precisely how much money those players are being paid and on the conditions by which they're being paid them. And it was essentially a professional courtesy because the live lawyer said, we think these are confidential. And the tours lawyer said, we disagree, but we're not going to risk putting this out in the open and, and then getting admonished by the judge if, you know, cause she's not going to make that determination today. 
And so uh, if, if discovery goes forward, those contracts are eventually going to get unsealed and we're going to get to see exactly how stupid or how genius some of these players are for taking the money that and was what the escalators them. look like and what bonuses look like. Cause that's the thing. I mean, talking about cams, for instance, like I don't, you know, I'm not sure, you know, like let's say cam makes number one in the world before the end of this FedEx cup. At that point, I, I hope for cam's sake that there's another escalator in there that has, that gives him another $25 million for being number one. You know what I mean? Like there's just, so the, the, in the transcript, um, the, the conversation, I won't, I won't read it all, but it says, well, these contracts provide for pay, uh, the court. This is Judge Freeman says, the contracts provide for payments simply for showing up for the first tournament. And Mr. Walter says, well, they do, but then they have to have to win money in order to recoup against the contract. So they're a little bit different. Um, and on the hot mic, which I don't know if we're allowed to submit this into evidence, but it sounded like, one of the other attorneys that was sitting there was kind of like, what you meant to say was, and you, and then I heard, <laughs> Brandel heard Brandel Shambly's name, and then they were quick to, uh, several people reached out to live and asked for clarification on this, and they were quick to say, like, no, this was not as intended. So Brandel, of course, did another victory lap that he was right on this, and he's not. Like, almost certainly, the, the no names, that's almost certainly what happened. Like, I would be shocked if Chase Kepka didn't have a provision in, in his that said, like the first five million that you earn in tour events is like against your contract yeah. versus exactly like somebody like Bryson who has always clear. yeah it's free clear yeah. but also or it's like hey you have to basically have a draw from these tournaments because that shows that you completed the actual event so yeah. even if you get last place money that's still like that that almost enacts you know like hey one of these let's say you got to play thirty events right like thirty events over three years this enacts one of those thirty events. Right. And so also continuing on from a, a finding and says, uh, based on this evidence, TRO plaintiffs have not even shown that they've been harmed, let alone irreparably. It is clear that the live golf contracts negotiated by the TRO plaintiffs and consummated between the parties were based on the player's calculation of what they would be leaving behind and the amount of money they would need to compensate for those losses. TRO plaintiffs have signed contracts that richly reward them for their talent and compensate for lost opportunity through tour play. In fact, the evidence shows almost without a doubt that they will be earning significantly more money with Live Golf than they could have reasonably have expected to make through tour play over the same time period. Further, TRO plaintiffs' contention that they will irreparably lose future sponsorship opportunities and career status is undermined by TRO plaintiffs' evidence that Live Golf offers a refreshing new, extremely fan-friendly business model that will lead to an improved broadcast, output, and entertainment experience compared to the staid old golf world built by the PGA Tour. If Live Golf is, is Elite Golf's future, what do TRO plaintiffs care about the dust-collecting trophies of a bygone era? End quote fucking sick that's awesome <laughs> to use all of the shit that live has been pushing out and, and flaunting for so long against it in a legal case is very much of like davis love was very much of bring on discovery like i i we have a lot more to gain and i do not know if this is good advice at all but they seem to have a lot more or be of the mind or he is of the mind that there's a lot more to gain for the pga tour and discovery in terms of what else has been going on behind the scenes with live and again i don't know if that to be accurate but it doesn't seem like they're as afraid of like peeling back some of these layers so it's also funny they were talking about matt jones and hudson swafford as two of the guys hudson swafford hasn't hasn't made a cut since like the heritage and then Matt Jones, like, like it's it's just, yeah. You know, and granted, like Gooch has had a good year and all that, but like Matt Jones and Hudson Swafford couldn't be more. I mean, I know Hud won one in the desert, but like 
Like neither of them has done shit since since the spring, right? And the and the judge kind of made a, another quip in the hearing about like it's not like these guys are numbers one, two, and three. Like what? You know, I, I think they're like sixty five really and sixty seven. Yeah. Yeah. What are we talking yeah. about? Yeah, <laughs> which yeah, I mean it's it, the you know it it goes back to is the harm a you know is there irreparable harm? And for it really, Gooch was the best case because he was what twentieth in the standings and actually probably would have locked up all the majors for next year if he would have just yep. been able to tee it up. But the judge is saying you took that into consideration and you took a lot of money to not do that. So, And if I may say the elite ra- rodeo case seems to be bad news for Liv and uh, elite rodeo, blah, blah, blah. Horses in the back. But basically the finding was no irreparable harm where plaintiffs are unable to compete in the PRCA, blah, 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 because they are owned and are competing professionally in competing era. Again, these are two different rodeo leagues or whatever, but arguably at a higher level of competition and which they claim will lead to an increased exposure to fans, improved ability to attract sponsors, better health and longer careers. Basically like all the things that live is promising. It sounds like has unfolded in a precedent case of elite rodeo. Yeah. I, I read that case this afternoon and it's an interesting comparison because it, like you said, it does emphasize a lot of the same things that the live players are emphasizing. Um, not the least of which is that they're earning more money and they're competing less. And that was the exact, well, theoretically competing less. And that was the exact same uh, set of facts in, in the elite rodeo case. There's also, I think there's two other cases and talking to some other lawyers, there's two other cases that kind of, you know, specific to this one and, and very uh, applicable. The U S or sorry, the NCAA versus board of regents of Oklahoma went, went all the way to the Supreme court back in the eighties. And it was all about TV rights, uh, which, for for the NCAA, and which can this go to the Supreme Court? A lot, you know, several years from now, there's got to be an adjudication of this case. So either a motion for summary, the parties will file what are called motions for summary judgment, which basically say all the discovery's done. There's no dispute as to what the facts are. It's strictly a legal argument. Judge, please make a decision. And she can either say I agree with one side or the other, or she'll say no. I think that there are enough facts that this needs to go to a jury. In which case, there would be a jury trial. The jury would render a verdict. Then that verdict can be appealed to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which would take probably another year. And then uh, after that, depending on who doesn't like the outcome there, it could be appealed to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court would have to agree to actually look at this case, um, which they they don't necessarily have to do. They can deny you know, a writ of petition for certiorari, which is what it's called when you're asking the Supreme Court to <laughs> God, take... God, this is fun. <laughs> to take, versus PGA Tour. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I want to say that the very first uh, thing with the, the Zoom hearing was when the... Michelson. Uh, yeah, the, the clerk was like, Michelson versus PGA. Like, yes, we're off, baby. This is going to be awesome. So so just, just reading through this NCAA versus Board of Regents, it says... Uh, the case dealt with television rights to college football games, which were controlled by the NCAA and limited the appearance of university teams in each season. The, the NCAA believed that their control of TV rights protected live audience, which was disputed by a number of colleges. These larger colleges formed the College Football Association to negotiate television contracts until the NCAA then advised the colleges that they would be banned from all NCAA competitions, not just in football. Uh, then, you know, then Board of Regents of... Oklahoma sued to stop the practice. Supreme Court held that the NCAA's actions were a restraint of trade and ruled in favor of the universities. So there's that one, and then there's another one, the NFL versus American Needle, which is the headwear apparel company. Mm -hmm. 
as well. So I haven't I haven't read up on that one. Well, but. and the other thing is that the tour has been sued in antitrust before. There's a case called Morris Communications versus the PGA Tour, and it was a two, it was early 2000s case back when the tour, you know, the earlier ages of uh, of live scoring on the internet, which has clearly not evolved in the last <laughs> 18 years, but back then it was a it was a case about essentially these uh, media companies suing the PGA Tour because the the tour controlled the shot well pre shot link, but essentially walking volunteers scoring it, transmitting back to the truck, the truck posting it online, and then it you know doing a live scoreboard and, and the. Uh, communication, Morse communication said, well, that's not fair. We have to buy a license in order to do this. And uh, the tour is preventing us from essentially having the ability to also post the live scores. Um, and there was a, a, a an antitrust claim there. And the, the uh, that was actually in uh, the middle district of Florida and then the 11th circuit. And in, uh, in that case, the tour actually won on the antitrust claims uh, at the summary judgment stage, essentially the court saying, it's okay for the tour to do this legitimately uh, legitimate thing to protect its business interest to again, prevent free writing your, your term, um, which also comes up in the tours brief in this yeah. case. So it's not, uh, it's not like they haven't that came up in the initial suspension, I think yeah. even. Yeah. yeah. So the tour knows uh, how to, how to argue this. Um, and they have a judge that's sympathetic to their defense. So, you know, you would think the tour might want to move this thing along as fast as they possibly can to a certain extent. Basically it looked like the American needle one was, was all about, NFLPA or the NFL, um, you know, teams, can they collude together to grant licenses to say Reebok or fanatics or whomever, or can they each, you know, decide upon who they want to license stuff to? So. All right. I think that is, uh, all the legalese I think I can handle and probably most of the listeners can handle, but <laughs> until next week, probably on that one, uh, a couple other items to get to before we close out the week. First week of, uh, major changes to the OWGR. Um, for those that are not familiar, it is a I've, free, free riding season. Free, free is over. riding season is definitely over. There is uh, no more minimum first place, uh, points awarded to weak fields. So Kind of the background on this and something we've been talking about in this podcast for uh, many years now is on a lot of tours, specifically on the European tour and the Asian tour, um, they have a, a minimum amount, regardless of the field strength, you a, a, a defaulted amount, minimum amount of uh, 24 points allotted uh, to European tour events to the first place winner, which greatly outpaced uh, the actual strength of a lot of their fields. Um, and we saw basically what that led to was a bias in the rankings on both the European tour and the Asian tour. This new system is more based on a strokes gain basis. And uh, the the field strength is actually going to be uh, reflective of everyone that's in the field now, not just a ranking of the top players in the field. And uh, this is another big win for the PGA Tour as the Asian Tour is going to lose points very fast um, or not have nearly as many points available, which might be quite important as Patrick Reed goes and went and tried to manipulate this week and went and got a T31 in the uh, International Series event or whatever that was on the Asian Tour and got uh, all, he, he got a little bit more points than he actually would have gotten under the old system, ironically, but it would have taken uh, – he got less points than it would have taken for, to finish last of guys that made the cut this week uh, in Memphis, and it's not significant in any way, and it would be really hard. Uh, basically, so the live guys, if they want to try to manipulate and get some world ranking points through Asian Tour events, are all going to have to play at the same time and have to do it quickly because they're already falling. And they, are, and they also don't even have that many highly ranked players to begin with, enough to manipulate the fields to get enough points. But um, this is a pretty pretty significant – it's it's going to have an impact going down down the road in terms of 
you know, how points are given out. And uh, it's it's quite interesting. I can't remember who I was reading. Uh, somebody wrote an article about Jumbo Zaki. It was Eamon Lynch. Did, and, yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> like he was, he had enough points stacked up. On the Asian tour. On the, on the Japan, Japan tour, tour to where he just... Like, like until he was like 48 or 50, he was like in the top 10 in the world, right? <laughs> something like that. Something at, but greatly outpacing. Uh, basically, uh, kind of my whole beef with this was you could get very high in the world without actually beating the top players in the world. And that just didn't like There really should have been like an artificial ceiling or a yeah, glass ceiling of some sort. There, It just is. It's long overdue to make an adjustment of this kind. Now, is this a very, very bad development for the DP World Tour? Yes, it is. Uh, at the same time, they've been uh, they've been free riding a bit, if you will, on and getting way too many points comparative to their field strength. And you know, I, I saw some takes flying around of how devastating this is going to be to the uh, the fields on the DP World Tour. And to that, I would say they're not pulling big fields anyways, even with the big points that were available. Well, and the purses are so small comparatively too. Like, you, if your yeah. option is play for a bajillion dollars with Live, play for a shitload of money on the tour, or play for virtually nothing in Europe, like. You know, unless yeah. that's your only option, then why? It's would like you it was essentially Europe? like an off week in Europe this week, and the Corn Ferry, you know, had a stronger field, like almost by double. Yeah, my concern isn't so much about the f the impact it has on the fields; it's about the impact it has on the connectivity between the PGA Tour and the rest of the world, or between you know the the other regions of the world, like the other tours, being able to you know, especially with less you know, there's like the WGCs essentially going away these other events going away, it's kind of like, all right, like what, what are the avenues through which somebody can, can, you know, advance their career, you know, before they get to the PGA tour, I guess. And that's where it yeah, sounds I think, like, I think it kind of just makes it not necessarily closed shop, but I mean, I think I saw Megan McLaren uh, tweeting about this, but you know, there's probably some players who don't want to play in America all the time and who yeah. would prefer to stay in Europe and, and to do those things. And, I, I kind of got to just throw my hands up a little bit on some of this stuff and not that I disagree at all. And it kind of sucks for people like that. But I think the the days of someone just predominantly playing in Europe and becoming a top 10 player in the world are probably over. Yeah. Like that's, that's probably not going to happen anymore. And, which, and I think there's some negatives to that as well. But I think from a pure competition standpoint, rewarding the best players, I think this is also kind of inarguable. That's kind of where I net out in that. Yeah. Is it, <laughs> Is it damaging to a lot of tours, except for the PGA Tour? I would say definitely say yes. But at the same time, like, is it the official World Golf Rankings' job to prop up the Asian Tour yeah, right. and the European Tour? It's an acknowledgement of the current reality. Yeah. Right. And if that's the crazy thing to me is just look at, look at how far the whatever you want to call it, DP World Tour, European Tour, how far they've fallen over the last decade, and it's especially crazy. two decades. Like, you know, I know a lot of this started prior to. Prior to his tenure, but man, you got to look hard at like Keith Pelly or Scott Pelly or whatever his name is. Like, how, <laughs> one of those two. Like, he, you know, like, man, like, I think it's probably, it should probably be the end of the road for him. Yeah. It's, I, I'm not well enough versed in, in all that to say, but it, it's very clear things have not gone well for European Tour over this time period. But there was the uh, ISPS Honda Mix, which I always want to say Honda Mixed. Uh, I don't know if that's the name of it, but the, a, a simultaneous men's and women's event between the uh, DP World Tour, the LPGA Tour, and the Ladies European Tour uh, in Northern Ireland this week, which made for some great TV. Uh, it doubled down the chances of an exciting finish. It was not that exciting on the on the women's side as Maya, Maya Don't Call Me Arya Stark wins for her the fifth time since September. 
um, and gained LPGA tour status. Did she take it? Or you, she could defer until 2023 if she wanted. I don't know if there's a decision. I think I saw there. a post that she had accepted okay. LPGA. So yeah. um, she's been an absolute killer um, on the Ladies European Tour since. Cowboys. Since, since, Oklahoma since State. That's right. Lynn uh, Grant played well again. As well, uh, the Swedes, like the Swedes, the Danes, they're playing well, man. Shout out Lauren Coglin because she finished what T sixteen. Yep, she no. was yeah. she was up there. I mean, it kind of uh, fell fell back a little. Not bit. the weekend she was looking yeah, for. Yeah, a lot of putts didn't fall on the weekend. Weird, but. weird, weird golf course. Yeah, it was it was tough to watch. Like there was it was firm but narrow, and they were tucking pins everywhere. And weird penalty areas just barely off the fairway, and and, and it was like it was like it was so narrow off the tee that you couldn't really shape the ball or you couldn't really play for an angle because it was so firm that you just go right through the fairway and yeah it was just like it was like watching them try to turn up the like just you know turn up the dial on a on bad architecture with firmness and it's like don't do that that's not good (laughs) so i mean again like it's it seems to be an equal opportunity thing in northern ireland and regular ireland to have the tournaments on bad golf courses. Yes. So <laughs> they they basically said, "Oh, believe me, we will." Um, Corn Ferry results this year. Absolutely, no one changed their status in the final event of the year. That's sick. A, the twenty five that we're in uh, are in, and uh, we'll, we have some, we'll have some time this fall to kind of take a look at. It into. was. I think overall it was kind of flat this yeah. year a little bit. Like there was a lot of I don't want to call them retreads, but a lot of guys that. Uh, you know, just didn't really like that have been on the tour before. They're falling off the tour. You know, Robbie Shelton, props to Taylor Montgomery for getting in. I know he's finished. I think he finished 26th yeah. in both the regular uh, season both lists and the year. finals last year. Uh, Michael Kim. Getting yeah, in. that was also he's cool. Michael really, Kim and Brandon Matthews are two two big ones to, to highlight. Yeah. Justin uh, saw. Uh, but but also, I that, think. Is, I, Doe, is that Doe? Yeah. Marty Doe was Marty in there. Doe. Yeah. I think there was Shout out Will Knights. the most the most interesting part was the guys clawing over the top seventy five, which you know basically to get into the the next three events, the finals events, um, which a uh, local guy Philip Knowles here, yeah, Philly Knowles got in, uh, played played his way in this week. So he said he had a, a flight booked to Boise and a flight booked to Jacks. I'm <laughs> sure that flight that that uh, Boise credit's going to be a big one. Yeah, what, exactly. Little surprise to see Akshay because was didn't he win? He won early in the year and, and didn't was get in the 25. Way up the leaderboard this week and did not wow. get it done this week. It was tough. There's been a few of those here of late. Like, yeah, you know, kind of high variance guys. So, which uh, yeah, I don't. I'm not. I don't think Akshay's ready to be down the door on the PGA Tour yet. I think he could still use some some development. No, um, but I mean, it's just weird to win on the yes. Corn Ferry and not, you know, get get your card. Vincent Norman, other Swede from FSU. Flushersonly.com. I'm excited to watch him next that year dude on tour. It. And then, yeah, I guess we this was rumored. We talked about it after the British Open, um, but this was, I forget the, was it the Guardian or the Telegraph? Whoever, somebody's been all over it from the beginning. Uh, finally reported that Cam Smith, it was during the hearing that the news came out uh, that Cam Smith is signed with Liv for over $100 million. Thanks um, to Cam, Cameron Percy. Uh, you changed know. the timeline of that release. Yeah, that which I was like, first, I didn't know. First, first reported by Cameron Percy. I was like, didn't everybody already know this? Um, but yeah, it's, I don't know. I mean, I've, you know, a bunch of people have been like, oh, your boy's leaving. Yeah, my boy is leaving. It sucks. I'm not happy about it. I, I understand Leash a little bit more than Cam. Leash is probably has... You know, a couple more good years. I don't think Leash is working too hard in the weight room or, or you know, I don't think he's going to be playing well deep into his early 50s. 
Um, you know, so he's, he's, it makes sense for him to maximize it. It still sucks. I, I don't judge those guys as harshly as I do the ringleaders from the beginning of this either. Um, but man, it's tough to square with, with Cam's, you know, quotes a year or two ago about, you know, man, like I don't play for the money and I'm just going to get a bigger fishing boat if, if I do make more money, you know? Yeah. And it's what we've been saying over recent weeks. This is a, this is a change in basically all the signings that they've had to date. They've not had a player at their peak, um, you know, potentially number one player in the world that it clearly has a ton of great competitive golf in front of them leave to go play on the circuit. And to that it is, it's damaging. It's hurtful. It, it's not good um, for what may come after it. And it sucks. There's just no, no, uh, no way around it really. It still just feels off to me, like off brand for cam. And um I, I, you know, it's just super awkward. He is going to get asked about it in pressers and he just says, I'm here to win the FedEx cup. And, and it just, you know, it's, if you hear it, you're going to hear it from me and not from Cameron Percy. It's like, well, actually Cameron Percy said it and he's right. And that's where I sucks. struggle a little bit to where in that same, like, you know, at the almost exact same time, like the tour, like they're talking about it in the trial about like basically suspending guys for recruiting other guys or for guys publicly talking about live. And it's like, I, I know he I, can't publicly say I, it. Like yeah, you can't yeah. go to the FedEx Cup playoffs exactly. and say, "Yeah, I signed with Lib." Yeah. I get that, but it just—I don't know. It's a, still a little bit shitty to go play the FedEx Cup playoffs just, yeah. and just bounce, just bounce. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I get it. Like these these events are lined up intentionally, you know, to or, or the live events are, are lined up opposite, not playoff events for for reasons. Um, you know, they they maybe thought they could play them, but and I guess the way that he would justify it would be that you know he's earned. It's like part of his bonuses that have been earned throughout the course of the year with, with his open championship win and with his players win and all that. Like that's, you know, he's earned at least some semblance of however many millions of dollars. It's not to start another legal conversation though, but it's actually probably quite hurtful to Liv's case that they're signing like the number two player in the world. Again, again, if your point is that you're having a difficult, and I know it's not Liv's case, the Liv plaintiff's case is that it, the point of it being, um, anti-competitive but the, but you're able to sign the number two player in the world is uh it seemed seeming contradiction and you know i think with cam too it's just it, it gets down to like he's he's exact he's probably the perfect play he, he is the ideal player for live to sign he's his best golf i feel like is ahead of him or at least was ahead of him we'll see how this affects him on that regard he's extremely likable he's he's the reigning players champion like how oh, fucking yeah. awkward is it going to be? If he wins this, oh my, if he wins the FedEx Cup, holy shit, man. Yeah. It's going to be so awkward. But just, you know, like, all right, cool. He's probably like, he's not going to be. It's going to be I'm, I'm the Chappelle Show gif of like, of uh, Monaghan just smacking the trophy off the yeah. table. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what? Huh? I, th I think with the camp, the camp stuff, I don't know. It's tough. It's, uh, he's kind of on that top five player, like, I, I hoped wouldn't go list because i love watching them play at the same time he's now exempt into all the majors for the next what five years the open essentially for life uh he you know it, it, it kind of i don't know what his like childhood loyalty to the pga tour is you know i know obviously grew up watching the majors i don't know how closely grew up watching pga tour golf but on the flip side i also you know and tron you're probably much closer to this than i am but just reading between the lines on on kind of what changed over the past couple of years, it kind of seems like it's just because he absolutely worked his ass off, and and the PJ Tour absolutely pushed him to do that. 
right? And so I, I don't, I'm not rooting for this necessarily. I mean, but I could kind of see him being in that category of live guys. It's like, sweet man, yeah, I'm just gonna fish a lot more, and like your performance is going to to fall off if that is the case. And and he kind of seems like a prime example of somebody that's like, yeah. He is selling at the absolute highest. And I don't know. I mean, we say this about guys all the time. Like, oh, man, they've got another five years, another 10 years. They're just going to keep going, keep going, keep going. I honestly, I'm, I'm happy to look like an idiot down the road. Think that if he goes and does this, like his best golf is not ahead of him. Because his, because his whole game's predicated upon working hard. And like his, his, it's all about his intangibles, not necessarily about this raw talent that he's trying to tap into. Who knows? That's what it seems like. That's, I, I don't know. It kind of just sucks all I'm all just the way curious around, too. But... Like what, you know, he he lives like a mile and a half from TPC Sawgrass. <laughs> I mean, less than that. Like he lives, he lives a mile down the road. He he practices out there. He, like he, he runs into everybody at the local coffee shop. It's I think he's going to be looking for a Pablo Creek membership. But. Yeah, well, yeah, but like Fincham and Monahan are over there. Like they're probably not going to let him in there. Like I think he's probably going to be like, "Well, shit, I got to move to Jupiter and play out of Medalist or whatever," right? But you know, I think the other thing too is DJ. You brought it up. Like it, there's a certain sense, and people shit all over me when I bring this up. But I think it's a very real thing. Like the Australian guys and the South African guys. Like you're totally right. Like it's not. They have a lot less loyalty to the PGA Tour. The PGA Tour is an American entity, right? And to a certain extent to where, you know, I don't I don't think the PGA Tour, I think they've done some things that may have been malicious, but otherwise, like, I don't think that there's been a whole lot of instances where they've helped out other tours, right? Where I think the wraparound schedule thing really hurt the Australian guys. Yeah, those, those two countries you mentioned specifically have a disproportionately high number of professional, like world-class professional golfers. Uh, in comparison to the amount of attention that the golf in those countries gets paid, yeah. particularly on professional level. And they have their own tours like in those countries, and those tours are predominantly played in, you know, in our winter. When these when guys like Cam and like I mean, I've talked to Maddie about it a bunch, where like if Leash doesn't go and play the Shriners and the CJ Cup and the Zozo, like he's he's rocking up at Sony, you know. 75th on the FedEx Cup list or 150th on the FedEx Cup list and like feeling like he is up against it and it's not a good way to start the year. And I know that's like, woe is me. You're you're making millions of dollars to play golf. But these guys also like they've most of them have done a good job of going back to Australia in November, December, playing golf down there. Like, I mean, Adam Scott used to do that every year. Like he was sharp as fuck going into Kapalua every year because he'd been playing, you know, he would, he would play and then he would rest for a while and recharge down there and he'd come back and tear it up on the West coast swing. So I think there's definitely a certain level of like, you know, I think cam could go like, I, like I wouldn't underestimate that. Like the guy didn't get to go home for like two years due to COVID. Right. And he, where, where I, where I, I don't disagree. I think I, I, I don't excuse it though, is this is all going to change. Like totally. in the next year, yeah, right? Like the, this is a spe- specific thing that is going to go away. So yeah. it's not, just not a value. Maybe they are frustrated with how that's gone over past years, but that's not going to be that's the case totally, going forward. Totally a valid, you know, a valid thing. But I, I just think at some point, like the, the schedule feels more self-contained. Plus I know that they've said, Hey, we're going to have two more events. They're not going to be live tour events, but we're going to have two more events, you know? And so, Hey, if Cam goes home, you know, twice a year now for an extended period of time for two or two or three months. Like that feels like a massive quality of life thing for him. 
I also think like this is probably going to devolve into not. Uh, I think I'm I'm going to develop a certain level of uh, hates too strong of a word, but just uh, frustration and and upsetness at the people that are going to fight the PGA Tour on this. And the, the, the live players that are gonna fight the PGA tour and the live players that are just gonna go play the other tour. Right. And I think it's the assholes that are gonna try to have it both ways and are gonna make the shit just crawl through the courts and it be excruciating and trying to double dip is gonna put you in a totally different bracket than like a lot of the live guys that aren't a part of that suit and 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 part of, you know, antitrust claims in the future and, and all that. It's kinda like if you guys wanna go do that, go do it, but just you can't try to tear down and break up the entire PGA tour competitive network along the way I saw something so. this week like Bubba resigned so that you know I, it sounded like he had resigned prior yeah but the fact that he resigned and then more guys got into the got in, finals you know, yeah. and it, it didn't sound like it was it was you know he did it because of that or whatever but when you resign question like when you resign do you give up any vested income or any no so it's you're vested okay yeah, yeah. and okay. I, I believe it's I, I don't, DJ, you may be able to speak to this better, but I know Davis Love mentioned because DJ's he resigned from the tour. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't play 15 events and his retirement kicked in. So I don't know if their retirement kicks in okay. as of a certain age, plus not playing 15 events, or once you don't play 15 events, your retirement starts kicking in and you start getting paid off that. But all right. We are, we have now turned this podcast into the two plus hour show, which is, uh, Going to be tough to sustain going forward, if I may say. But as we as we approach here at the end of the PGA Tour season, it's uh, a whole heck of a lot going on. So I got to say, thank you, Job, for all the work that went into preparing us for this. Thank you, guys, educating us on They're everything. No up legal hour going on uh, in the world. Uh, please let us know what your hourly rate is, and uh, it's going it, up after what I saw on uh, the the hearing last or on Tuesday. <laughs> tell you I don't charge enough. So uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We'll be back here uh, same time next week. Cheers. Uh, Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. That's better than most. How about in? That is better than most. Better than most. 